0: Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures in Advising Podcast. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and, of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Without further ado, here's the latest episode. And as always, keep advising. (laughs) Keep advising.
1: Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising
0: with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations. This is Matt Markin.
1: Welcome to episode 25. We've reached the quarter of a century mark and thanks to everyone for helping us to reach 7,000 downloads of the podcast. We're really happy and we could not have done it without you, the listeners, and with all the people who have taken time to appear as guests on the podcast. So just a big shout out and a big thank you to everyone. We really do appreciate it.
0: Yes, indeed, we have reached episode 25, and the last episode of the year, we made it. This has been a journey, a wonderful journey. This has really been a labor of love, and who knew a podcast idea would turn into actually recording a podcast and to do it for an entire year? It has definitely been incredible. With that said, again, thank you for everyone who has listened in. And before I forget, let's give a shout out to probably our youngest listener of Adventures in Advising. And that is to Brayden Thomas, who is 11 years old. Brayden actually has his own podcast that he started recently and has even given our podcast a shout out. Brayden, thank you so much. And thank you again to those who have sent us suggestions, supported this podcast and been on the podcast with us. To share the stories, the tips, and the examples from our guests has been what I feel this podcast continues to be. And that is sharing those stories and helping those in the academic advising community. So here's to the end of 2020 and the continued podcast in 2021. But now I do have some news I need to share. Uh, This episode, episode 25, for me personally, is dedicated to my former director, Raymond Navarro, who sadly passed away the morning of December 10th. Ray was the director of advising and academic services at Cal State San Bernardino, and the person who hired me in my first academic advisor role back in 2013. Ray was my boss for two years before retiring in 2015, Having worked at CSUSB for 26 years, since 1989, Ray earned both his bachelor's and master's degrees at University of California, Riverside. Ray was also a huge, and I mean huge, fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers. As a student, Ray said that he liked the learning part of what was out there in life. And Ray was a person of faith and through some tough times in advising, Ray was always the cool, calm and collected person we needed. And he often used quotes and stories to to help us get through those difficult times. Everything I have done or have had the honor of being a part of in academic advising has to start with Ray. If he never hired me over seven years ago, who knows if I ever would have been in academic advising. Ray was someone who believed in students. He believed in his staff. He believed in making a difference. Uh, He was a huge promoter of NACADA, that is for sure. People can say they support advising, but Ray lived it. Ray would always talk about NACADA and always wanted us to attend advising conferences and always wanted us to have professional development opportunities. Ray was also a boss who let you run with any project or idea that you wanted, much like my former associate dean, Chris Lindfeldt. So, thoughts and prayers to Ray's family. And Ray, I will never forget you giving me my start, your kindness, your patience, helping me develop as an advisor. Thank you so much, Ray. So, it's tough to transition here. So, let's just go ahead and just roll right into our interview intros. Mm
1: We have three great interviews in today's episode with higher ed professionals based across three different countries. Coming up is an interview with Ian Tindall. Ian and I actually worked together in Dublin for a few years before he moved to the UK. It's a wide ranging interview and you'll hear about Ian's work and also his article for the British Stammering Association. Delighted to be joined on Adventures in Advising today by Dr. Ian Tintle, a psychology lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the University of Chichester on the south coast of England. Ian obtained his BA and PhD degrees from National University of Ireland, Galway. And from 2004 to 2010, he worked in the Department of Psychology at American College Dublin. In 2010, Ian moved from Ireland to take up a lectureship at the newly established psychology department at Chichester and has been there since. Ian teaches courses in cognitive psychology, historical perspectives on psychology and professional skills in psychology at undergrad and master's levels, along with supervising PhD students. He is the study abroad officer for the department with general responsibility for the student experience. Ian has published widely in journals, including Intelligence, Stress and Health, Behavior Modification, Journal of Experimental Analysis of Behavior, Consciousness and Cognition, British Journal of Psychology, Health Communication, Journal of Contextual Behavioral Science, Journal of Cognitive Enhancement, Journal of Behavioral Education, Quality Report, and The Psychological Record. His research covers a broad range of topics such as behavior, analysis of language and cognition, attention and decision-making, intelligence, ostracism, psychological flexibility, adaptability, autism, body image, attitude, attitudes to public breastfeeding, acceptance and commitment therapy, and sexual health and well-being in older adults and vulnerable groups. Ian, welcome to Adventures in Advising.
2: Thanks Colm. I'm really happy to be here and I, I have listened to many of your previous guests and it's it's a, a really fascinating series and I'm really happy uh, to be part of, of this. Thank you for the invite.
1: Well I'm delighted to uh, get the opportunity to chat to you uh, today. Unfortunately Matt um, had a, a last minute work commitment um, come up but we have quite a, a range of topics to, to discuss and uh, I suppose I, I'm in the fortunate position of knowing you since mm-hmm. uh, our time working together at uh, the uh, American College Dublin. But, you know, for for listeners, we, we've, we've talked, obviously, a, a, a sketch outline in the bio. But can you talk to me about like, I suppose, your route into higher ed? What were the motivations for uh, getting involved in higher ed? Did you picture yourself working in higher ed when you were younger?
2: Um, th- thanks, comment. That's a, a good, good question. I think I was always really curious as, as a child. I just devoured every book I um, that I could get my hands on, Um I was actually quite gullible and I believed nearly everything that I read. Like, but I just wanted to know everything that was that was uh, out there. And um, I think I was the, the little pet favorite of the local um, li the librarian lady. So I'd be in there like at least three or four nights a week. And she'd always keep the the newest book when the new one came in she'd just hold it specifically for for me so um and it wasn't it wasn't as if that we had much role models where I was growing up so I grew up in a council state in in Meath. and um it was a fun place to grow up and there's loads of kids around uh, to play football and to cycle bikes and so on but there was there wasn't any real tradition or history within within that state of people going on to to university so it wasn't as if you looked up and that was that um done thing. But it's something that I always really wanted for for um, for myself. I just wanted to learn to learn more and to read, and I really enjoyed the the idea of, of teaching. But I always I didn't really just want to teach at at primary school level or secondary school level. I really wanted to be teaching at the university level because I wanted to be able to research a, a, alongside the, 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 the teaching. So, and um, even though I have huge admiration for 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 school teachers and and they do an amazing job, and it's a really difficult job i, I wanted um, to do the research alongside so that was a big driver but when i was choosing university um i kind of chose what i thought would be the most fun university to go to so the, the typical kind of foresight and planning of a 17 year old um, so, and so when you think of all the universities you could go to say, well what what's your highest priority and i think fun was definitely a top but I chose um National University of Ireland Galway it was called University College Galway at that time that I I went in and its name changed and one of the reasons why um I, I chose it is that it had um a liberal arts program effectively so your undergraduate arts degree but it had four options that you could take and in, in in first year so that was my kind of major decision as well as it being in a, a, a fun city and I really wanted to experience Galway and a been there on, on holidays in the west of Ireland and always had a lovely feel to it and something that I wanted to explore and I always wanted to move away from home as well to have their that kind of university experience and uh, in, in in independence because I knew of some people gone to university when they would travel up and down on, on the train or the bus every day but you could see them coming home at six or seven in the evening it just never seemed as if they were living the university life that I would, 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 would want to um to live. So Galway um, was the only university liberal arts program in Ireland at the time that had four options for first year. So I just thought because I didn't really know what I definitely wanted to do, it gave me the greatest choice. And um, so then I could explore what my interests and passions were during the first year. So in in my first year in Galway, I did um, English um, history, classical civilization and psychology. Psychology was the one that appealed to me the most um, or or, um, Originally and it wasn't as if I knew any psychologists, it wasn't as if I knew any psychotherapists or counselling psychologists or clinical psychologists, or, or I'd never come across an educational psychologist. So it wasn't as if I had a big idea of what a psychologist might be, but I was always fascinated in human behavior. The human mind is just always interested in what drove people to do what they did, what, what and what was where did their attitudes come from and how could you engage in behavioral change and cognitive change and so on. And um, so it just gave me the option to do it. And... Um, Within the psychology program when I was in, in Galway, so it was in and around 200, 220 students in psychology program in first year. And you had to get into the top 25 to get into second year. So it was quite competitive. But at least there was the safe kind of uh, parachute jump that if you didn't get in, you could still continue with your other subjects. So you would choose two other subjects in, in second year um, if you went straight with liberal arts or if you did psychology, did you just did a psychology BA degree on on, on its own. So I was lucky enough to get in to the top twenty-five in um, and, and to get in second year, but I was still to still made a, a decision because my passion in first year was definitely classical civilization because I absolutely love Latin and I love um, Greek and Roman history, and that was just story time. That was what. University felt like you just go in and you'd be swept away by an amazing storyteller lecture for, for two hours. You'd almost forget to take any notes because you were kind of spellbound and Galway had some amazing lectures in classical civilization. And um, I found English tough enough, even though I loved English and read, read all the time. What I found difficult about English was actually reading back over books that I'd loved and having to analyze them for Marxism and feminism and multiculturalism and, and all, all these kinds of things that like, It was almost like ruining my enjoyment of it, like having to write these quite dense essays on something that I'd loved previously. And some people were fabulous at that. I did fine in in English. It wasn't that I was, yeah, I, I did poorly. It was just that I felt it was kind of taking away some of my joy of of reading. Um, but obviously, doesn't do that for everyone. But that was like a one one thing I felt. But I was lucky enough to get into psychology in second year, and then uh, that's that's where my career kind of went, went from then. And Galway was just a brilliant place to do psychology. It was just a fantastic university to go to. It's an amazing campus setting, and it's right in in the in, in the centre of a really small city. That so it's a perfect uni, uni, uni university town. It does rain a lot, so you have to be able to tolerate like three hundred <laughs> days of rain a year. But um, when you're an undergraduate student, it doesn't matter so much because you live an indoor lifestyle. You're in you're in lectures, you're in the library, or you are at house parties, or you're at uni college bars and so on. So it's not much. If I was thinking about it now, I think the the, the weather would be a factor now. If i was thinking, could I live in Galway? Like, and even though I absolutely love it. It's definitely in my heart. Whereas uh, when you're at university, that was absolutely fine at that age. And um, so I, I went on uh, when I left um, my, with my BA degree I got a first class honours And but it wasn't I wanted to do counselling psychology I thought but at, at the time in Ireland you had to be 25 to be accepted onto a master's programme in counselling psychology and one of the reasons naturally is that if you don't have enough life experience it's very difficult for someone to accept you if they go in and see that you're 22 years of age and they are going through a divorce for example or a miscarriage or a number of years of drug addiction and they're looking at you or bereavement and loss and said well you've no life experience so I can understand that so I got accepted on the basis of my grades but I said we need you to wait for a few more years before we'll let you on a program so I was kind of in a bit of a limbo and is working in just a various jobs like life insurance and so on which were absolutely fine and they were offering me long-term contracts but then I was lucky enough that um, my uh, the professor and the head of the department at the time Jack James in Galway came back to me and um, Asked to come back to do a PhD and apply for a fellowship, I actually turned it down twice. I was so, to do it. So when he came back to me the the third time, it was just an accident, really, of history. I had pneumonia at the time, and I was in like literally lying on the couch watching TV for six weeks. Like I couldn't couldn't really move at all. So that that was that was into uh, I, the third time that he rang was just literally just coming towards the end of that. And I would said yes to anything at that stage. So, um, and I was offered the the, the contract by the by the, the life insurance company at that stage, which would have offered security and and money and like a really steady income and could have easily come into a, a career progression. But he was really keen on. He said, "Why do you want to?" He said, "You you're not you're not destined for that kind of job." He said, "With your kind of mind, you and um, you'd be much better off in academia and coming back." So it was lucky he was quite persuasive. So I went back to do a, a PhD in psychology then. So. Um I absolutely loved doing it and Galway was great because it, it gave you great experience in teaching as well so we got a lot of hands-on experience doing tutorials seminars and workshops working and and um, so it's just a really it was a really kind of close department at that particular time it was really small and then it grew um, substantially Um I was looking up during the middle of my PhD to be offered a full-time lectureship in in Dublin and that's where I met you Column in American College Dublin and so it meant I took the longer route, and I would say this to your, to your listeners, there's no one route to take. So if you look back on my CV, my PhD definitely took longer than others. So it's not wasn't a standard three or four year PhD. It was definitely longer, but I I wanted to take that next step, even though I wasn't quite finished PhD yet. Um, and it is challenging to finish a PhD and do a, um, a full-time job, but just seemed like a really exciting opportunity uh, at that time. So um, there's lots of different ways to do PhDs or to do masters. So, and whatever, whatever age you are, um. just there's no, there's nothing to stop you. There's lots of sports. It's naturally a bit more challenging as you grow older because you've got more responsibilities, but it's definitely doable with the right supports. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made was going to Dublin and um, to uh, to work in American College Dublin. And we had some brilliant years there, Colin. So you know, I, I thought it was an excellent department with, with really great students and it was a great atmosphere and, and, and vibe as well. So, and we had an amazing location right in the city centre of Dublin, walking distance of absolutely everything. And so, and um, that was a really fun time Um then when 2010 uh, I just felt it was time for a change in terms of um seemed that the energy was was changing in the in, in place and um I wanted to continue with research and uh, and so on so that's been something that I felt I wasn't doing enough of maybe at American College Dublin so it's something I had originally done but not doing enough of so I just um, saw an opportunity for a university in Chichester which I'd never heard of Chichester i have been to England plenty of time but never heard of Chipster before so I went over for the interview and it, I almost didn't go for the, for the, for the interview so the um, Icelandic v- v- volcano erupted in 2010 and my my, my flight was cancelled so fair enough it's a pity it looked like a nice opportunity so I had to cancel the, the, uh, the interview but they seemed really disappointed so that seemed a pretty good sign but then when I was talking to my father on the phone he convinced me that you need to go so he convinced me to go over on 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 ferry and then take a, a 13 hour journey to get to the interview so if he if he hadn't have said that if he hadn't have rang me I wouldn't have gone so I wouldn't have been in in, in chichester but when I read the ad it's almost the ad jumped out at me it seemed like it seemed like I, I could actually tick nearly all the boxes which I don't normally which you don't normally do in any kind of higher education job there's always some things you have strengths and other weaknesses you might you might not um be able to kind of address very readily. I say I, I, that you have that in, in, in your locker but um so when i went over it just seemed like a lovely place they were setting up a, a brand new psychology department from scratch so the university was there a while but they were setting up a brand new college department that was only one year old so they only had a first year cohort and so that just seemed like a really exciting time because they were open to new ideas to new modules to new ways of being to new ways of dealing with students to new types of, of societies and so on so it just seemed a really nice uh, uh, opportunity and so I, I, I've been there since and Chichester is a, a lovely place to live it's a, it's a beautiful city small city on, on the south coast of England and um, it's surrounded by rolling hills and um, a harbour that, that is, is really lovely so I think it's it's one of the smallest universities in, in, in the UK so just in around 5,000 students but it's a really homely university and it's a very dedicated university to the student experience and I, I think um, we develop really good relationships with students and they go on to do really good things.
3: with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into the admissions game, satire edition, and uncover my top secrets for surefire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you for, for sharing the, the journey. I think there are a, a, quite a, a few interesting things within that, I suppose. Um, you know, happy circumstances that led to fortuitous decisions yeah. and one of the other things that jumps out at me, and, and we'll, for a lot of our listeners who are based in North America, I imagine when they hear that, you know, you're going into first year and you're excited about the fact that you've had a choice of four yeah. subjects, uh, it probably seems a little bit different. I was the same. I did arts in, in UCC, and it was the, the the ability to do those four. But obviously, it's a very different system to, to North America, where you have the, the wide variety. But I mean, you're, clearly, your, your passion for learning shines through there, um, I'm, and I think you you provided a really nice piece of advice for for anyone listening that you know you can education takes all different forms and you can approach it in different ways and circumstances might mean that you need to park it for a little while and come back or find a different way to go through it. I'm wondering for listeners uh, or anyone out there who who's thinking about getting into academia, into higher ed, is is it a path you'd recommend?
2: I think it's something that Everyone could ha, should have the opportunity to do it if, if if they wish to do it, and it's something that I think we're particularly good at at the University of Chichester and that we've got a, a a very wide range of ages. We've got um, students in there who come in straight from uh, from school, so at 18, 19 years of age, but we've also got lots of students who are coming back in their thirties, forties, fifties, and even in in their sixties. So I think that lot, that really adds to the quality of um, our our classroom engagement is that some of the best questions that I get are from students in their 40s or 50s, 60s who um, worked in many different areas and um, just did never intended to go or else it wasn't the normal path for them and their, their family. And they, a lot of them have been quite successful. Some have owned their own businesses and so on. And they come back curious and they come, they come hungry and they're just really eager to learn and just looking for the opportunity to read. And not them say, well, because you're so busy in, when, in general life, especially when, when maybe kids come along and you pay for a mortgage and you're trying to keep a, a company going, you don't have that much time to read, even when they're really, really curious about people and, and, and the world around them. So I would say to anyone that academia is is a great thing. I think this year particularly, um, when you look at the kind of discourse that we have in, in public and societies and what people are kind of believing and the kind of things that people are saying, because we're, we're living in difficult times, but... I, I can definitely see the value of education in, in the quality and calibre of the conversations that people are having online and discussions about such things as um, vaccines and wearing masks and just caring for others. And so I find the people, a lot of people I know that, that have, have been more well educated, they're, they're, they're not as susceptible to, say, certain stories or um, they're more um, sceptical, they're not cynical, they're more sceptical of some of the information and they're more critical in, in their thinking. So I think what academia, it gives, it gives you a great critical thinking skill set. I know it's always something that we find difficult to define exactly what critical thinking is, but just being able to dedicate that time to all that reading, to writing essays, preparing your arguments, trying to defend your arguments uh, against criticism and constructive feedback um, working in groups to put presentations together, preparing for that for that exam when you don't know exactly what the question is, is going to be. And um, writing a full thesis at, at the end of your say of your final year on, on a project that you're interested in, when you're developing the, the, the research question and you're testing your hypotheses, collecting some data and then analyze it and so on and um, in science but also in, in, um, in, the, in the arts and humanities and, and business and so on But that sustained attention over a period of time. It just makes you, uh, I think, a more reasoned um, thinker um, and um, just more open to other possibilities and that your, your your particular perspective may not be correct or might even be true to it makes you open to other ideas but also not as um, easily led by certain kind of, I would say, weaker uh, ideas that have no real evidence t- to them. So I, I think this year in particular, you see, I see really uh, the real value in uh, education. I think it's something that um, anyone who wants to do it, no matter what age you are in life, I would certainly recommend it. I think having a university qualification is an excellent thing to have. You don't have to. It doesn't obviously define make you a better person. I'm not saying that it's just, it gives you, um, just the opportunity and you can find some real interesting aspects out of, about yourself, about your own character about your own attitudes, about your own aptitude, and your own motivations, and so on. So it really challenges you in a number of different ways, but it gives you a really great skill set that you can apply in many areas of life, not just in careers, but also in your personal and uh, social life as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And I mentioned in in the bio that um, you have responsibility within your department for the student experience, and I suppose thinking on on that, um, and probably we can we can talk uh, I suppose a, a little bit as well about PhD supervision. But I'm wondering from an academic perspective, um, you know, you, you're 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 coming. You know, not as a a student support professional or as an academic advisor, but from an academic perspective, can you talk to me a, a bit about like what your work around the the student experience
2: entails? Um, so, I think student experience is something that we take great pride in at, at, at Chichester. As I was saying we're a small university and we get to know our students extremely well. So, I've taught at some other universities where. I might be teaching at a wall of say three hundred students and you don't really get to know their the students' face, faces or names that well. You'll get to know a few, the ones who might come to you for a tutorial and, and ones who might ask you questions after lectures, but just simply too many to get to know that that well. But in Chichester in, in, in with the with the smaller numbers that we have, we get to know each person and so we get to know their stories, we get to know their family backgrounds, we get to know that they're doing part-time jobs and what, what they're doing it in. So in terms of uh, building that relationship, I think that builds the, the student experience in that they feel that they belong because I think a key thing about student experience is identity and belonging, and I think that's something that North American universities are superb at. That's something that um, we're catching up on in in Europe, but it's something that um, we haven't been as strong on. Like, so I've got a lot of experience working with US students as well because I I worked for a company called IES. Um, International education students. I was based in Chicago, and they would send U.S. students all over the world, and I would look after them in Ireland, um, for various different um universities in Galway and Dublin, and I learned a lot from that. And but they they had great identity with with the universities, whether from something like Purdue University, or whether um they're from in Indiana, or whether from New York, um, or whether they're, they're from the University of California, and so on. But if they would be wear their clothes with, with, with pride. And so on, but they would feel that they belong, that they would be really passionate about the basketball team or the American football team, and um and then so on. Just it just seems as if they knew that that that's where they were, and they they really belong there, and they had a clear identity. And I think that's something that we do when we work with with the student experiences, we help them to identify that they really do belong at Chichester. They're very much a part of our psychology and program, and um we we try to create opportunities for for them and to tell them, encourage them to look outside of what they might originally have thought when they came and encourage them to do things like take a a study abroad experience. And it's something that um, a lot of students might think about when they come, but it may be in their second year, oh, I'd really like to try something. And so our our students have had amazing experiences in particularly in the US and Canada. And so our students have gone on Erasmus in Europe as well, uh, but particularly the US and Canada ones, they look after students so well that they know how to have to give them a fantastic time. They got very dedicated support staff um, there so we've had students go back there and um, after they finished to come back for another um semester we've had students go back to do summer camps in the in canada and so on uh, afterwards and they've made really great friendships and also bonds with, with the lecturers there so when you're creating the student experiences you, you're also encouraging the students to form their own societies and to form uh, the, the, their own groups but definitely to make give them their voice as uh, as well so something in gypsum we give our students a lot of voice and they have and chance to really shape and frame the the degrees going going forward, and we're adapting our the number of different degrees that we have based on kind of student feedback as well. So that increases their experience. The small group kind of settings and uh, lectures and seminars definitely helps because students get to know each other and um, well. And our campus is small, so students congregate in similar uh, places, so they're not like diversity spread into multiple canteens and multiple bars. So they tend to congregate in similar places and get to know each other really well that, that, that way. Um, But I think it's when you let the students know that they're cared about and they're thought about and that when you know their name and when you, when, when you meet them in, in, a, in a corridor or a hallway or when they ask a question, that makes quite a big difference. Um, And also that they can come to you for career uh, advice or they can come to you to something personal happening, maybe a relationship breakdown or maybe there's um, a loved one or um, who is suffering from from chronic illness and they need the need kind of support. Those kinds of things you don't tend to happen as much in the larger u- universities. It's more difficult when you got a lot more students to get that kind of relationship going so, or to build it. So I think that builds this, the, the, the student experience. Plus, also we also put on kind of lots of guest speaker and, and talks I and mean, we give students... opportunities to become kind of peer and teaching assistants and volunteer research assistants and so on so it builds up their their experience and their portfolio for personal statements and extracurricular activities but i think the main one is really that creating a sense of identity and belonging. this is where you belong here now and you're very much a very valued member of the research community and also with the student experience we try to include them in our research as well and see students as being um, researchers because I remember in, in, in Goa, one of our English professors said, um, one of our first lectures said, no undergraduate student has ever written anything worth reading. And he was kind of trying to show off his own kind of his own pomposity, really, but it, it was so demotivating like, to say that just, none of you will ever write anything that will be worth my time reading. Um, and so on and he was a published author himself but he um he was quite famous but he wasn't a really good lecturer at all so I kind of take him from that that's not how you build the student experience that's not how you set people off and say for example I published um I think five or six journal articles with um with first with um undergraduate students based on their projects so and we tell them with the student experience as well that you you are a you are a scholar you are an academic so this is in psychology but can be in any domain and so to encourage them to you have original ideas so don't just say I'll become a psychologist when I have my doctorate or when I'm 10 years in the job as as an academic I always tell them that you are a psychologist now that you have uh, really good ideas about what's causing human behavior and, and what motivates people and how we can change and people's behavior and how we can reduce human suffering and and so on. And and I'm always amazed by the the ideas that that, that students come up with. And that kind of keeps me going and it makes it fresh every single year. It'd be very easy to become a bit cynical over time and say, well, you have seen everything in academia. You've never seen everything in academia. You've never seen every type of student there is. There'll always be some other students come up with something that will really surprise you and kind of take your breath away and go, wow, that's that's a really amazing idea or perspective that I haven't thought about before. So that's something that um um excites me but also where we where, 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 where it is as well like we we're, we're, we're not too far from London and we're very close to Brighton as well um and, and cities like that and we're, and we're close to the sea so it it adds to the kind of experience that they have if they want to get out in, in, in the community and explore explore things but it's it's a very friendly safe campus and environment I think that really really helps a lot. so it's something that we do well on in what's called the national student survey it's a, a uk-wide survey of, of university students who are coming to the end of their degrees and then they evaluate and, um, and talk about the universities on, on a number of different kind of variables and factors, but it's something that we do well on is the student experience.
4: Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby.
1: great to hear a faculty member who is you know clearly so invested in the student experience because that's where i think it works best is, is when faculty and support services dovetail and, and and work together on the student experience. And it's interesting as well to hear you talk about like the, you still remember yeah. that lecturer in in first year who told you, you know, you, as an undergrad, like you don't even really belong here and, and how, how much you wanted to ensure that that is not the case for your students. And when we talk to advisors or people working in, in student support, and we asked them why they got into the field. Many of them talk about there was an inspirational figure who they really admired and they wanted to to follow that. But equally, some of them talk about how they had a terrible experience at university and they want to to, to ensure that others didn't have that experience. So it's uh, it's interesting to hear that it's kind of across the, the, the spectrum, whether it's a uh, a support professional, or whether it's a it's a faculty member, and maybe that leads on to my next question, which I suppose is is around the supervision of particularly of PhD students, um, because that that is something that you know there certainly, and, and we talked to um, Kean O'Callaghan, who is in Trinity College, and Kean talked about how there's no real training um, to be a PhD supervisor so you know you're I, i'm interested in in hearing how you approach supervision and you know what what were what was your inspiration for that was it your relationship with your own supervisor or was there something else that that
2: fed into it thanks Colin. that's a really good question um you know you're right it, it's just so much in academia where you don't get actual official training so um a lot of people end up lecturing who've never had one hour of training in being a lecture like they're not even just a one-hour online training just simply there's there's a class go go go, teach and most people are, are fine but it can be it can it can be quite daunting if you haven't had, had some training but with PhD supervision um, something that we have is kind of regular enough um, super supervision kind of session supervision training sessions where people get to share their their AMA experiences Um, but I, I think it's, it's crucial I think I think a PhD is incredibly valuable there's been times in my life where I doubt like okay i don't see i don't know what my skill set is almost because at least if you get say a master's in civil engineering you know that you can build roads and you can build buildings if you've got a master's in computer programming i know i can develop software and i know i'm employable and so on. so. you think you've got you know what the actual kind of career you're going in the skill set you have and then you can market it with, with a phd it's a bit more diffuse than that but i i think it's an it's an incredibly valuable degree uh, I, I i think Dedicate yourself to that time for three or four years to one to one topic and getting to know it in, in that depth. It drives you crazy. There's so many. There's just really nothing like it in terms of the highs and lows. Again, like, um, you can get really excellent moments when you might find an amazing article in in the archives if you're doing some history research, for example, or if some data comes out really nicely for for your if you're doing some science type type work. And it's just that's an incredible high. Or you get your first paper kind of accepted in, or you get your first. Uh, you give your first conference, international conference presentation. They're amazing. But there's real lows when there's incredible lows and um, when maybe you get a, a, a rejection or supervisor is not really happy with the work or you're, you feel like you're six months behind and then you're a year behind and then maybe some life event happens, which kind of steers might steer you off track for a little, a little while and then you're wondering, are you doing the right thing? And most of it boils down to loneliness and not being maybe part of a group because in a class, you're usually part of a group. Whereas a lot of PhDs are quite on their own. In the US, it can be quite different in that you can have a structured PhD where you're taking some classes as well as doing your, your research. But typically in Europe, you're doing your PhD on, on its own. And some people kind of follow the old kind of Oxford, Cambridge idea of go away and leave me for three years and come back with something brilliant and like without very much guidance. But for me, PhD the, is about mentorship and it's about, it's an apprenticeship in research. It's an apprenticeship in scholarship. Um, so I think that takes away some of the mystery from it. So I think with what well, I would say for anyone deciding or choosing to do a PhD, so the three most important factors, it's kind of a no, it's, it's a bit of a joke or an, or an adage, really, but it's still for me is the uh, number one most important factor is a choice of supervisor. The second most important factor is a choice of supervisor. And the third most important factor is a choice of supervisor, because it's a fundamental relationship. It, in, um, every, it's, it, it's a make or break in, in, in a PhD. 'Cause there's no one topic that you have to do. Because you probably get sick of it multiple times if you're doing it for three or four years. There'll be sometimes you'll love it and other times you'll actually hate it. Sometimes it'll keep you awake at night and um, sort of worrying about it. And other times you'll just be you know, be actually thriving and flourishing. But it's uh, it just but there's there's so many different topics he can do. Just doesn't have to be just one topic you can do. And you might be going on to a funded PhD that already has an idea. And in, in place so you're coming on to a ready-made project or you could go on into one where you spend the first six months kind of scrambling around for um, an idea that, that, that that's worth kind of um, researching and um, but I would say with, 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 with PhDs I've I, I had two very different supervisors with very different expertise and characteristics and personality characteristics so I learned a lot from from both and um, but I learned from the mentorship that um, that you, it's there, that they are, they are a friend. It's a, it's one of the closest personal relationships that you, you have in your life if if it's done done well. And the PhD super, supervisor should not be seen, not should not see the student as an opportunity to gain publications or just to gain easy, um come almost like a lab assistant or an easy research uh, assistant. It, it should be your role to mentor them, to guide them, because they are the next generation. Um, they are, they potentially could be a lot better than than you than down the line but just to give them the benefit experience and to give them the, your, your, your time and to so understand that there'll be lots of different variability within students as well. Some will be truly um, uh, uh, um, uh, exceptional. Some will be more hardworking, but um, mightn't have as strong, maybe same individual um, capabilities as others, but actually might be more successful in the, long, in the long run. Because what I found with a lot of PhD students, it's the driven, motivated ones tend to do well because it is a hard slog. And I've seen people drop out, not under me, nor I've seen it in other places, people drop out after two years. And it's such a pity to dedicate two years of life and then not to come out with, with, with a PhD at the end. Um, I would say as well that some people think the PhD, you have to keep going to chase down every last bit uh, uh, bit of your topic, whether it's researching a particular person in, in history or you're researching a new potential economics uh, idea in business or whether you're researching um, a theory or model in, in psychology. You can never get to the end point where you covered everything. So I think experienced supervisors will know when the end point comes, and and then they'll be able to tell the student, okay, now you've 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 built up enough knowledge, you've got a, you've developed an re- excellent skill set, you are now ready. And the PhD gets you ready to point out you're now at the end of your apprenticeship and you're ready to go and you're ready to be your own scholar and and an um, academic. And also, I think with things like if supervisors bring kind of students along to conferences that with them and to guide them and mentor them in, in that process I think I think it's one it can be really um, uh, um, uh, exciting but it can go it can can break down there can be difficulties and students have all kinds of different life experiences themselves and it can be difficult some people have children some people might have to be working part-time somebody might be looking after an elderly parent who might be ill so there's lots of other things that can come on in the background but if you're a supportive supervisor you can put plans in place and um, for for that. And I, I think it's one of the uh, of, of the key roles is to um, develop the next generation along, uh, along with it and hopefully do some excellent research together along the way. And it should be should be fun.
1: Yeah, I. I I love how you've explained that. I love the motivations and and the inspiration and just the sheer practical advice that you have um, provided there. So uh, thank you for for the breaking it down, kind of and and making it so accessible. And I suppose one of the things that I thought might be interesting to to talk about for for listeners, um, because you know we we have so many listeners who. Are kind of all around the world, but um, a big chunk in the Americas, and they they might not be as familiar with you and your work. But one of the pieces that you you wrote a piece um, over the the summer um, for the um, British Stammering Association, and um, I wondered if you could um, share a little bit about that and and your own journey, and um, maybe te- some some of the techniques that that you utilize that, and that might work for others.
2: Uh, thanks, con Thanks for pointing that out. So that was actually, that was interesting that it brought me back to a place in my life that I don't actually think about that much in that um, I had a terrible stammer or stutter. So um, I know it would, depending where you are in the world, some, sometimes you'll call it a stammer and in other places in the world you call it a, a stutter. There are kind of subtle differences, but they're effect- effectively the, the same thing. So um, I was cr- effectively crippled by it during my, 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 my childhood. But it was interesting when I was asked to write this article, for the British Stammering Association. So they were looking, they had a series called Your Voice where they're looking for people who had a stammer and um, how have you kind of overcome that or at least how have you come to live with that and progress in, in, in life and have you got any kind of advice or tips for people who are really struggling with their stammer now. So as, a, as a, throughout my childhood and uh, adolescence, um, there's so many things I couldn't do because of my, of my stammer. There's so many situations I couldn't put myself in. Even though there's lots of, answers that like that I knew say a teacher would ask and I knew the answer but um I just couldn't say it uh, out, out and as the teacher said well I'll, that's disappointing that no one knows and I, I knew the answer because I knew if I tried to say it I would just get stuck on, on the first letter and that that was it um I could be there for two minutes going duh 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 duh, duh and I just couldn't like so I had particular problems with duh and uh, uh so with D and M where, where the particular problem words so I just kind of learned to navigate around that and try to avoid situations where I had to speak in public so I was lucky enough that school is is very much kind of written based and that is ri- written tests are a lot so I was looking that I would do I didn't find written tests difficult and I was I would generally get an A or on most kind of subjects Um, so um, not all but but no but so then I felt like I was still doing oh oh okay at school but if it had been all kind of kind of oral-based, kind of more verbal-based, then I would have struggled a lot. I don't think I would have been able to show what I knew in those situations. So it transfers to many other situations in shops. I could not order what I wanted. Um, in restaurants and cafes, um, I couldn't order what I wanted. I would nearly always order what the person before me ordered in, in the queue because that's what I heard. So people who stammer and stutter are usually quite good at repeating back what they've just heard. So even if it wasn't the meal that I wanted at all, the person in front of said said i would say it back and I'd be i'd be really disappointed going going back going over to the table with, with my tray because i knew i didn't really want this i didn't fancy it but it's the only thing that i could pronounce because someone in front of me said it so you you're going through life and you feel as if you're not living you're 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 true you're not being true to yourself you're kind of sort of in the margins or just drifting in, in life. I would have been kind of bullied in some instances because of it as well. And just people will be mocking you. You'd be walking down the school corridor and there'd be people doing the stammering voice. And it, just, it was, you could say, bullying might be strong, kind of teasing or, but it was still quite regular. And it was a beyond the school buses as well. That would be, they probably... One of the memories that, I, that I, I'd find difficult even now still looking back and still replaying those kinds of memories. Because they were really cruel and the people were brilliant. Like they had me down to an absolute T. Like they just, when they're doing their submarine studying, like, and everyone else is laughing. Because it, and it would be funny. And they were natural kind of comics and actors as well. But but when you're at the center of it, it's so embarrassing. And it is and all you can feel is yourself going red and you feel their heart racing. And you just want the ground to swallow you up. Um, and so it's just over time I became kind of more just more accepting of it and it wasn't that I developed any technique about my breathing but I did tend to slow down but it probably to your America, especially to your North American listeners it sounds like I probably speak very fast particularly with the Irish accent as well so I know I speak fast but some of that is to try and not stammer so if, I, if I'm speaking at a certain pace I know that I will still stutter on certain words but I will keep going with enough momentum that it won't stall me the way it used to because when I was like, even when i would be nineteen or twenty, I'd be trying to order a drink at a bar, and it might be something like, say, Budweiser, and I got but 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 but, and then um, I could be there for ages. Especially when there's a queue of people behind you, and they're all trying to get to the bar, which is typical in Irish bars. It it was really really embarrassing. So I felt that I end up trying to avoid nearly all kinds of situations where I had to have to speak. It wasn't a fear of public speaking, so I wasn't fear uh, of speaking to people in public or in situations I just simply just could not pronounce um, um, the letters and, and, and sounds. Um, but I found over time that uh, I be- when I came across um, acceptance and commitment therapy in my research so they've got a concept called psychological flexibility and so psychological flexibility it's really all about trying to um kind of open, unhook yourself from the thoughts that you have so that you're not quite fused or stuck with the thoughts so in the, in the concept of cognitive fusion um so this is when you're fused or stuck with, with thoughts that you might have say that i i'm going to embarrass my mind my, myself or that um this is going to go really 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 badly and everyone's going to laugh at me so you're really stuck in those thoughts and you'll do anything to avoid being in the situation where this my, my, might happen so when, when you're fused, it um, literally is like you're branded like a sheep with with a, a hot iron on your forehead, and that's you, that you are a a, a stammerer, that you are an embarrassment, and, and, and then so on, that, that you there's something to be shamed about, and somehow you're a failure in life because everyone else seemed to do it so easily. Everyone else seems to be so fluent, and how is it so elusive um, and to you, no matter how hard you try or whatever breathing exercise that, that, that you might, might have or, or engage in. So it's um it's fine. So when once you try to um do some exercises where you um, you try to accept the thoughts for, for what they are so that you notice that you're just having the thought that you're an embarrassment or having the thought that you're a failure or having the thought that you're gonna stutter and make a fool of yourself, it suddenly doesn't those words don't seem to hurt you as much anymore. So you're still aware of it, it's still the problem hasn't gone away, but just being aware of thinking as a process. Rather than the product of your thinking, but the product is uh, list hearing yourself saying that I'm 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 an embarrassment. And um, but when you're listening to yourself and understanding thinking as an ongoing process as that's happening all the time, it tends not to have the same kind of impact on you. It doesn't have to be quite as uh, aversive. And then act um, and psychological flexibility also have a concept called experiential avoidance. So if you engage in experiential avoidance, you tend to avoid uh, most of your inner experiences, like you avoid your unpleasant thoughts your unpleasant sensations your um, memories that you don't want to experience again so it takes a lot of cognitive effort to push those negative thoughts and emotions and feelings away that you don't want the the unpleasant stuff in inside and so you you experience and avoids can be engaging in cognitive kind of suppression where you're actually deliberately trying to stop your thoughts or you might it might manifest in some kind of behaviors such as drinking too much alcohol to block the negative thoughts about about yourself and say and about your stammer and about how you m- how you must look um, socially. Or some people will eat too much chocolate cake um, or junk food. Just And so the purpose of that behavior is to suppress or push away those negative thoughts. So experiential avoidance can be... Um, you, can, uh, you can also av- avoid the actual situation. So you can avoid going to work or to give a presentation or go to a restaurant or a bar because you know that you'll stutter there or you expect you will. So you'll, you won't go there. And that limits your life and your life becomes really narrow. So it limits your opportunity to meet people to meet new possible new friends, maybe potential romantic um, en- encounters and so on. If you narrow your life, then and then your behaviours become really rigid just to avoid that situation. So, if you engage in high levels of experiential avoidance and you're cognitively fused or cognitively stuck with, with, with the kind of rigid thoughts and the repetitive thoughts that you have, it, it's fu- it's very difficult to move forward in any kind of valued way. So, in, in psychological flexibility, to try to get you to be more present in the moment and not to be stuck on a conceptualized path. Of always thinking back to times when you genuinely was embarrassing for you or you were teased or bullied for your stammer and not to be thinking too much about the future and that's it's, it's going to be dreadful if next week when I go to my cousin's wedding it's going to be awful I have to give a um, a talk uh, or you might have to be asked to be give a speech um for your cousin or your friend and think it's gonna be terrible I'm gonna um definitely stammer when you're worrying about the future or continually and um, focus on a past that's already gone you're not living in the moment so with uh, kind of living moments, kind of mindfulness and just general present moments of awareness and just being, thinking of yourself as an observer. Like there's always a you uh, that's part of us that's almost separate. Like it's almost like we can look at ourselves from from above, like when a helicopter view looking down at ourselves. And um, so you've got that. And also trying to um, commit to some form of action to identify what action that you want to take. So I tried to put myself forward in a lot of situations that I can previously avoided and made myself talk in those situations. And I still stammered and stuttered, but people didn't laugh as much. And there was more acceptance of it from people when you get older as well. Um, And then I just identified, what do I value? So you can go through life not really knowing what you value. And um, so um, if you can kind of list out those things, so the values are the kinds of things that you want to be known by and that you would like to be guided by for qualities of your action rather than a goal per se. So it's not the goal that you want a first class honours degree, or you want a really big house, a really fancy car, but the values are how you want to live your life and the qualities by which you want to know and buy. And, also, and they generally tend to be quite reinforcing. What are your intrinsic reinforcers in, in life, the things that kind of satisfy you and give you pleasure that not, maybe other people can't see, but you just simply feel good in yourself, that you're achieving that and you're living by that, that you mightn't have the biggest car or you mightn't have the, um, the job with the biggest salary, but you're really happy with that. That That's, that's how you're actually li- um, living. In, in that sense so if you can look at your values try to identify those try to engage some committed action. say okay every week i'm going to try one uh, new situation that i've long avoided and and try engage and some public speaking tasks that will have to speak even though I'm, I'm, i might stammer and try to be more mindfully aware of the thoughts that are coming in and also try not to be as stuck or fused with those negative thoughts and Once you become rigidly fused with them, you tend to just kind of freeze in the moment and just kind of walk away from the situation, which is the experiential um, uh, avoidance. Um, So I I kind of once I was researching that model, I was able to apply it to myself. So I I tried to slow my speech down a bit and then I would put myself in those situations. But I know I still stammer and stutter now and I will do so plenty of times during this interview. But years ago, I would have definitely never done this. I would have been really appreciated the invitation, but I'd been terrified. I would have done, I would have come up all kinds of crazy excuses not to be a part of it, even though I really would have wanted to, and I would love to have come to the chance to talk. We were with you on this, but I would have definitely avoided it somehow, Um, made up some excuse, like um, some the, the kids are sick or something, and then not engaged. But now I think um, if you can put yourself in those situations, but it takes work. It's not easy. Uh, experience avoidance works because it provides the immediate relief it's negatively reinforcing so if you avoid going to that party then you don't experience the potential um um, rejection or potential embarrassment but also just here you you can breathe a bit easier that you're not actually in that situation um and and, so on so if you ask your fellow uh, diner to make uh, can they order for you from the menu? Um, so you kind of point to what, what, what you want and they'll order for you. That provides an immediate reinforcing um, relief that you don't have to actually say that, that, that food item because you know that you're going to get stuck on it. It's a bit embarrassing in front of the waiter, but the, that person's doing it for you. So it's continual reinforcing avoidance works in, in, in the short term. It's only really a problem if it becomes a rigid behavior and it narrows and restricts your life and your opportunities and possibilities because you just simply behave that way all the time. You always behave in that rigid, narrow way. And before you know it, um, your life becomes really restricted and you're simply not living the life that you could be living. So I think if you can try to increase your levels of psychological uh, flexibility, there's plenty of research in many different domains, uh, both in mental health and also in physical health, but it also applies to the workplace and so on that if you can increase that in levels of psychological flexibility, it simply opens up more options to life and you have more responses that you can make in, in various different situations that you don't always have to behave the exact same way.
1: Uh, Dr. Ian Tindall you have a wonderful way of making the complex accessible. <laughs> and it, it, it's been really fascinating to hear you kind of, we, we talk a lot when we Have guests on the show about, um, you know, theory and practice, and and putting theory into practice. But what you did right there in in that example that you gave is is shared your own experience and blended it so perfectly with the theory and with practical advice that that people can can take. And um, it it was it was a really wonderful kind of um, explanation and journey. And I will certainly look to include a, a link to. Um, the piece, which I think is growing a beautiful new shell, I think was the the title of it, and we'll we'll put that in the the show notes. Yeah, thanks, um, Mom.
2: That's that's actually from a Mad Season um, song. So um, Mad Season was a, a kind of a super group made up, and um, Lane Staley was was the, was the lead singer of that. Who is a singer from Alison Chain? So I think just some there's a powerful line in that, like so. um the, when the line was that um, I can either, I, sorry, I can either drown or I can throw off my skin and swim to shore and then I can grow a, a beautiful new shell for all to see. So that kind of encapsulates for me what the experiential avoidance was. I was, go, I was drifting away out to sea but, and where, where I really wanted to be on on dry land and dry land represented where people were. I wanted to be among people in social situations and just simply being myself and having my voice heard. So the only way to do that was to throw off the kind of the outer shell that, uh, skin that I thought was holding back move forward and then grow this beautiful new shell, but simply just is yourself. It's not necessarily growing a new shell. It's simply just being yourself in that situation for everyone to see and see the real you. And because um, communication is a human right, I think. It's something that we really should uh, allow and foster um, voices and, and differences and just allow people to speak because and to be heard. I think that's a, that's a really important point.
1: I think that is the perfect place to draw this interview to a close for now. I can't believe how quickly the, the time has gone. Um hopefully we can get you back on uh, again in the the future. Thank you Ian for taking the time to to chat to me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. And
2: um, thanks and I just to say to uh, thank you to Colin and just to um also say have worked in the past. What an amazing job you have done in in in, in student services and the relationships that you built with, with students and the opportunities that you provided for them and you still do in, in, in your current role but from the time that I knew you, the, um, just your ideas and your uh, your passion for, for students and also I think it's, it really encapsulates how important um, professional services are within the university. So universities are not just about students and they're not just about the academics. Um, the student support service are a hugely important role in that in in creating what you mentioned there the whole student experience and providing opportunities and also being that voice and, and listening to them and also being the voice of expertise in various issues which is, um visas and accommodation and so sort the of abroad and language issues and so on so I think that's something that you really excel at and but thank you very much for having me on today.
1: I think there was lots in that interview with Ian, and hopefully, listeners enjoyed it. If you do want to get in touch with Ian, you can do so either via uh, Twitter, um, and his Twitter handle is at I that's at I T Y N D A L L, or via email, you can get Ian at I.
0: All right. Next up is Michael Harrison. And if his name sounds familiar to listeners of the show, Michael was on an earlier episode of the podcast, but a shorter five minute or so interview. It was only fair to bring Michael back to have a full length interview. And I think this is an interesting interview for you to hear Michael and I have known one another for years, since 2004. Uh, Michael's background has been all higher education, much like my own, working as a student assistant, an intern, an admissions counselor, a recruiter, and an academic advisor. Here we talk about all that, as well as the importance of good presentation skills, and also his decision to leave higher education for good. So here we go. All right, up next is Michael Harrison, who was born in Compton, California, as the youngest of three siblings. He was raised in the San Bernardino area in both the cities of San Bernardino and Colton. In 2004, Michael graduated from Colton High School and attended Cal State University San Bernardino, earning his bachelor's degree in psychology. From his start at the university, Michael began working in student services and the office of admissions and student recruitment as both a student assistant, intern, recruiter, and counselor. After spending six years as an admissions counselor and recruiter, he decided to change career paths and became an academic advisor, helping students reach graduation. During his time, Michael developed an interest in the photographic arts to couple with his already passion in visual arts through drawing and painting. After five years, he made the decision to resign his position in academic advising in 2020 and pursue a new direction outside of higher education. Michael... Welcome to well actually welcome back to the podcast.
4: Uh thank you thank you glad, glad to glad to be here on this lovely uh, Monday morning.
0: So last time you were on the podcast we had a short short interview like 5 minutes and mm-hmm. we thought sure. it'd be great to yep. have you back on the podcast especially cuz there's been a lot of changes that have happened in your life since then. Yeah. And for those that may not know you um when you were in high school, you know what was a deciding factor for you when you decided to choose Cal State San Bernardino to apply?
4: You know what i i was I was going to go to the community colleges. Uh, I knew a lot of people that were going that direction. Um, had a Had a good GPA out of high school, um, and so I started talking to a mentor of mine who was uh, the youth pastor of my church at, at the time. And uh, so we started talking about college and opportunities and things like that. And so then we then the then the the, the opportunities expanded. And so it was like you know hey let, let's check out some schools. And so we looked at some schools. Saw so Cal State San Bernardino was near in the area, uh, a, a local university. And so I did the application um, and uh, was, was accepted to the university. Uh, I lived in Colton, so it was next city over and. So so grateful that I that I was able to, <laughs> to do the application. I think everything was a little bit late at the time, um, the application and orientation, all that kind of stuff. Did everything a little bit late, but I was able to get in and get enrolled for the for the fall.
0: Yeah, first thinking like okay, this is you know long time ago, two thousand four, compared to now when almost students have to apply almost a year in advance, and when when you had applied and ultimately a couple years before that when I was a student at Cal State and had applied as an undergrad. Like you could submit applications pretty much all the way up until when classes started. So we've come a long way since then.
4: Well, long way, long way. The demand is has greatly increased. The people going to college has greatly increased, and the space and funding hasn't uh, necessarily kept up with the pace. Um, for ne- that's ne- that makes it only makes sense with the amount of people that are wanting to go to college. So it's 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 restricted things a little bit.
0: Yeah. Now we met in August two thousand four. Uh, so at that point. I had just started, probably a week or two in, working as a customer relations supervisor. So the fancy term for overseeing the front counter in admissions and student recruitment. Do you remember what brought you to campus that day when we met?
4: Yeah, it was it was to do my advising session. So it was in August. Mm-hmm. Classes started in September. So as you can see, it was a you know probably about a month month or so before. Uh, but that was the reason why we were on campus. It was for my first time. My, my a good friend of mine lived. Maybe three four blocks up, but I'd never been past the park where you go come to North Park and in, into the university. So that was the first time. So I was like, "Oh, it's it's here!" and uh, and so yeah, we, we went. I did my advising, got my classes, and we were headed downstairs. And that's when we saw the flyer uh, for uh, admissions and student recruitment student assistant position opening on the
0: wall. <laughs> yeah, and so you came into the well it wasn't really the front counter because our front counter is being remodeled. So you came into our makeshift office. That was the, or basically our staff meeting room, essentially right, right. that we turned into a, a front counter. And I always remember because you came with your mom and you would fill out the application. I had no idea what I was doing. Like I had just started <laughs> as the supervisor of the front counter and I needed students for the fall, fall quarter. Uh, so I, in a month I was like, okay, I need students. So let, let's, let's interview. Let's put these flyers up. And I remember you filled it out. And I guess normally I would imagine that with those situations, you turn the application and then you wait to get a call or an email or something to set up a an actual interview. I didn't know that. So after you filled it out, I'm just like,
1: hey, so do you
0: want to do the interview right now? <laughs> and I remember you looked up you know, eyes wide, and then your mom like looks, and she's like, "Of course you will." <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> now, prior to like any uh, work experience, working in admissions, you had worked at Foot Action. That's one of the things I remember from your interview is you, that was you kept talking about relating everything back to Foot Action. How was your time at Foot Action?
4: It was cool. It was part of a fashion merchandising uh, elective that I took in high school, and uh, we. Got, did the application. It was me and um, I knew them kind of two guys that I knew very I, I knew them sort of. Uh, but when we applied to the to the uh, job and we all got the job at foot action and we worked there probably till about December. So it was during the holiday season. Uh, but it was really cool. We learned a lot. Um, it was around the time the first LeBron James shoe. It was coming out we was there. we were there for the launch of the very first lebron james shoe um it was it was a definitely a fun unique experience uh to work it was in the inland center mall so it was really cool
0: man now it's the man lebron's been around that long does not seem like that <laughs> Seven, 17 16 17 years know. time flies
4: time flies yeah for sure yeah, for sure <laughs>
0: Now, when you were at Cal State as an undergrad, you graduated with your degree in psychology. But if I remember correctly, psychology wasn't the original major you started with, right? No, no, no. My
4: My original uh, major was business or administration with a concentration in marketing. Um, I had done a few uh, business classes in high school. And I think I had done intro to business and business marketing, maybe. Two different classes. same Same teacher. I actually took... One of the two classes, Intro to Business, with Brittany Moore,
0: who's who's now an academic advisor. Yeah, now an academic
4: advisor. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so, I really thought, oh, business is cool. I, I I can do well with this. I got a knack for the the marketing thing, and uh, so I chose business marketing as my degree. And I hadn't even taken any administration classes. Not one. No accounting. No uh, management. No intro to management. Nothing. I took for general education, I took intro to psychology. Now, I'm remembering it as the winter of 2005, my second term. Mm-hmm. I, have to, I would have to have seen a transcript to know <laughs> when it actually was. But I think it was a winter, my second term. And I took psychology and it was the coolest class because it's the way my brain operates. I'm curious about, you know, things that people do about behavior and so I said, "This is really cool. This is a major." I was like, "I got to change my major." And After my second term, I changed my major to psychology. Yeah. But your, your 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 degree was psychology as well, right? Your degree it
0: was, yeah. yeah. So and and then stars was also one of our other yeah. academic advisors also in psychology. So yeah, yeah. we got yeah. we got a whole whole team of psychology majors. Now, That's when right. you graduated, what, was your plan to stay in admissions?
4: No, so. Good question. Good question. So when I was getting my degree and working through psychology, my plan was to go become a marriage and family therapist. And then I had a plan to go to seminary. Mm -hmm. So in 2009, when I graduated, I had actually applied to a seminary in Michigan called Andrews University. And uh, I don't remember what happened with the process. I think I chickened out. I don't remember what it was. It's cold. It's a far away from California. Um, but I decided to to stay in uh, California and I had already been doing intern work in the Office of Admissions, which was going to college fairs and doing presentations, which I definitely enjoyed doing. And I really liked and I like meeting people and talking to people about uh, coming about you know higher education. And the I graduated in March position became available in August. And so I took the position in 2009 and I didn't go out of state and I was um, an admissions counselor. But yeah, up, up until I graduated, I had, I, or initially my plan was to be a marriage and family therapist and then talking to some folks like, Hey, you know, have you ever considered seminary? I was like, Oh, that's cool. I think I could be like a preacher or something like that. <laughs> 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 and uh, I applied, but, and, and, and fortunately it worked out because, you know, I I think that, you know, marriage and family therapists do great work and they're very much Mm -hmm. needed. I learned about myself that I don't know if that was would have been a good pathway for me to take. You know, Um, with that, you have to you have to carry a lot with you and have effective means for taking it off. Right. Um, When you're when you're dealing with with, uh, other people. And so I, I, I learned Learned later in life that that I'm, I'm glad I didn't didn't go that direction.
0: Hindsight's always you know 2020. 20.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. If you could get better than 2020, the hindsight <laughs> would have been in that, in that position. I'm very glad.
0: So I remember the marriage and family counselor part, and I remember you, you were considering seminary. I didn't know you actually applied.
4: Application. It was it was nervous because they asked you if you spoke Greek or if you knew Greek and Hebrew, and I didn't. No idea about those things, and so. It was like you might have to do like a, a, a earlier term of I don't I don't remember what it was when doing the application, but that was that was a very nerve wracking process when we doing that application.
0: Now you talk about being an intern and some of the things that an intern would do. Now as an admissions recruiter and counselor, what were what was that role like? What what did you have to do as an admissions counselor and recruiter? So each
4: admissions counselor recruiter had about 20, 20 to twenty. Three or so high schools in certain territories. So they divided the the our local area, our region, up into territories, and so uh, each admissions counselor slash recruiter would have a territory. So someone would have the San Bernardino, and we usually we usually went by districts. So we usually would cover an entire district, but that wasn't always the case. Sometimes it was split. But so one would have the San Bernardino Unified School District. One would have um, Reno Valley. Unified School District is that what it's called? Yeah, it is. MBUSD, <laughs> right? Then uh, yeah. they would have the high desert areas, and so we would kind of divide it up that way. And so I had maybe about twenty to twenty three high schools, and then I had the two three community colleges: had Riverside Community College, Norco College, and I didn't get Chafee until later, but Chafee uh, I ended up getting. And so we would every other week, we would go to our community college and have transfer appointments in their transfer centers with students that were interested in transferring to the school. They could have applied, Maybe they didn't apply yet. They were just interested. We would look at their transcript and talk to them about transferring. At the high school level, we would go to the high schools. We reached out to our high schools at the beginning of the year. We would t- hopefully try to get to them at least each high school once, but some maybe three or four times a year and go do present. Uh, Cal State San Bernardino presentations. Sometimes we do presentations on the entire Cal State system for like college nights. We do college fairs, application workshops, really just their liaison whenever they needed anything from the university. So it was was a
0: big... Did you do financial aid workshops too?
4: Financial aid workshops too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were on the road a lot. We were on the road a lot.
0: Yeah, I just remember, especially in fall and then even in spring the recruiters would be out and about at the schools and you sometimes just come into the office for like five minutes, get more materials and then head back out. And then the days you were in the office, then the role was essentially that you needed to also be on appointments and then see students that came in who who wanted admissions advice. So it almost seemed like it was on the go constantly. There's always something. Was there ever a downtime? It seemed like it, it working at admissions.
4: Yeah, good. Good question. It it sometimes didn't feel like it, especially when you have the 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 it, it the more stable mm-hmm. position of being an active advisor, right. being always on the road. Even talking to some folks now, it's 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 always on the go. But there were downtimes, like summer. You we were in office, right? Um, and maybe around the end of the year, the winter break time, we were in uh, because the the the. Recruitment season had its cycle. So it's heavy cycle during the application period during the spring, like you mentioned, probably around um, February through April or so. But then from like April to August, we were in in in-house. So it, it was peaks, peaks and then in slow time. But.
0: Yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot of moving yeah, I feel like it's more peaks than it was lows in yeah. that office. For and sure. and sure. I'm sure you you as well, anyone that you've talked to, I know folks that I've talked to that used to work in admissions or work, work in some type of admissions office. Now at, at various institutions, it's very much the same where it's recruiters are pretty much on the road a lot. And then um, even those that are in the office um, as an admissions counselor, evaluator, it's just like heads down reviewing, making admission decisions. Because even as an evaluator, you're evaluating transcripts probably starting in December for like some type of probationary or conditional acceptances. And then you got to do the whole process again once the final transfers come in June, July, August. And um, I guess, what is your advice? Because you worked in admissions for quite a while. So what did you do to kind of stay sane or to kind of have that mental break?
4: Yeah, I think... Ooh, it, it's it's a, it's a number of things, right? So I think for me, what's always helped is to have an, an identity or a self outside of that position. So whether it's um, personal interests or personal hobbies, I you know was interested in music for a while. Uh, as you know, drawing was was always a big thing mm-hmm. for me, and so having that kind of uh, per, uh, the space. Because, you know, there was a while where I was going to different local, you know, churches and whatnot, you know, rapping and things like that. Right. During that, that time. So I had this whole even I even had a stage name outside of that. So that that helped. Um, but also, I think the way that you view the work that you do uh, when you're a recruiter, you're out on the road. And so you spend a lot of time in in route. Right. So what do you do in route? You Listen, to a lot of podcast uh, things that can help you calm, music, whatever it be. But really, it's just spending that in-route time effectively, reading books, uh-huh. audiobooks. I did a lot of audiobooks and a lot of reading, self-development things in those spaces. And then also when you're engaged and in front of people, it's, it's how do you view that as well? In any, in any kind of job, it's a matter of how do you view it. Um, I love. I'm curious about people. I love talking to people. I love presenting ideas to people. And so I found ways to get interested. I started working on my, and you know, you and I know this, it was working on my public speaking techniques, which my job was public speaking. So to be able to say, right. Oh, I'm going to become a better public speaker. I'm going to work on how to make PowerPoint presentations. Like what are the best strategies for making PowerPoint presentations? All that kind of things, the right. little nuances of, of trying to get better helped, helped me to stay safe.
0: Yeah. I guess that's a good segue. So You've made countless presentations. I mean, you were the go-to for all the freshman orientation presentations, the transfer orientation presentations, the makeup orientation presentations, in-class presentations, workshops, and the list goes on. Now, one thing you disliked was when people called you a dynamic speaker. Why is that?
4: <laughs> well, I, th- I that's a good that's a good question. That's a really really good question because dynamic is. To be a dynamic speaker and to be a speaker just in general is is pretty cool. And when people when people acknowledge you for what you do is pretty cool. So I don't necessarily think I viewed it as an insult from the people's, um, the people who were doing it mm-hmm. and saying it, um, because I think their intent was to compliment me. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, someone says, you look nice. You're like, oh, no, I hate the word nice. Right. <laughs> but I would say I didn't like the word dynamic because I think dynamic has its... There's um uh thoughts that come with when you're dynamic, and you think of a person who is rah-rah, hey guys, everybody's you know, this, that, and the other. And I think there was a point when I was doing that.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Right? When I was like, you know, but then as I got more into my presentation style and who I was as a person, I actually laid back quite a bit. Yeah. I it actually became conversational.
2: Yeah.
4: And so I transitioned from being that to very much More laid back and subdued, and so I I didn't think the dynamic were because I knew people who, when you would think of as dynamic speakers, right, and people tended to, to, tended to mix dynamic with excitable, Mm -hmm. like you bring energetic, right, and and then there's more nuance to it than that. So that was why.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and yeah, and 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 of course, yeah, I think anyone that has said that you're a dynamic speaker it's it's comes from a place of of, that they feel that they're complimenting you uh with that you know and and i guess a question that has come up too and we've talked about it is anytime you've done a presentation a lot of times you know someone may ask you hey how'd the presentation go and Mm. it used to be one where you might think like oh it went great but then you started kind of stepping back away from actually answering the question um and because you kind of felt like well i know that I went up there and I presented, but I actually don't know how I did because I'm not the one that judges how I presented. It's going to be the, the audience.
4: Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that was it. And then I started it. And as that was happening, I was starting to not feel as great about my presentations as well and learning to equally not do it on the opposite. Right. Because after I would do a presentation, I would sit there some days. I'm like, that wasn't, I didn't, e- even though I would, Work hard to get it. I would think to myself. I don't think I did very good there. And then people would come. Hey, you did your fantastic job, or I really appreciate it. I'm like, really? You know. So it was both, right? It was not to not get too excited about it, um, but it was also to not get too down on on myself if I feel like I didn't do a presentation when I was like, well, you know, it's out there in, in the public space. The public now determines what I do with it. But I did. I do notice that, that people are like, yeah, hey, I did. I did. Yeah, they great. I think I did awesome. And uh, I was like, well, I, I hope the audience agrees. <laughs>
0: yeah. Right. That that is true, which I think it's even with even conference presentations yeah. If you're in the audience, like, please do the the conference evaluation on the presentation because the presenters get that feedback and that's what they can use or hopefully use to either know that they did a great job or know areas that they can improve on. Because if they don't get the evaluations and all they have to go off of is how they felt they did and they could have thought they did a great job and it turns out they didn't. Uh, Like one example is, so I was presenting with um, a coworker years ago, we did a conference presentation and... My co-presenter thought that it went great, and I had these feelings like, "Ah, I don't know if it did, because at the end, we had about five minutes left, but we took so many questions during the presentation that we had to speed through like the last 15 slides, and boy, Mm -hmm. did we hear about it in, in the evaluation, and I just remember one comment was like, control your presentation, and but that was the best feedback that we ever got, because the next time we presented, we scattered questions throughout but we took the majority of them after we had finished our presentation yeah, yeah. but had we not got that advice maybe we would have still been presenting it the the way we were originally doing it yeah absolutely. what what what
4: feels is it's like the same thing principle with photography like you know when you're when you're working with someone who's not you know not a trained model who doesn't take photographs all the time and tell them that hey these poses that people do they feel weird but they look they look great. You're going to feel really, really stupid sometimes or really strange, but mm-hmm. it's going to look just fine. So what what you feel and what is true are often not the same thing.
0: <laughs> so speaking of photographs, that's kind of like the yearbook yeah. photos. Yeah. Like every time you would go in and the photographer is like, all right, chin down, shoulder this way. And then you feel like you're like this contortionist and you're like, this is not going to look great. And then you're like, you look at the picture, you're like, oh, that actually looks pretty That's professional
4: right. the, go, going by going by the feeling of it is not often That's why you know some people will record themselves for presentations mm-hmm. and then watch it back and it's mm-hmm. like oh I hate watching myself back I do too fortunately I was I was self-critical enough to be thinking about all the areas that I did or needed to improve on like I was taking mental notes of it so I didn't have to necessarily watch myself back uh, to see that but yeah it's, it's what you feel especially with presentations like you can you can get really, really pumped up about the fact that you know more information than your audience does. And you can like ride on that, like, oh yeah, guys. So I'm coming to you as a person who knows more about the information, but you don't, you don't necessarily give them uh, a tangible blueprint or it it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit kind of in a, in a model that makes sense from start to finish. And sometimes you can just get out there and, I, I I was even talking to a friend of mine, and we were talking about preparation. And it's like, yeah, looking over the information. I said, "Well, have you practiced, like, talk saying it?" And they're like, "No, I just kind of look over the information, make sure I know the information." So that knowing the information is like no. half, maybe forty percent, but actually presenting, right. you're going to be standing up talking to people. The people who know the information and forget <laughs> it all because they get nervous and tense. So that that was one of the things for, for folks is, hey, also got to respect the presentation. After a while, because I was doing it so long, mm-hmm. after a certain point, I, I understand presentation etiquette and technique and because I've done it so, so, right. so much. But there are a lot of people who really don't like public speaking or are nervous about it. But all they do is they just read the information right. and read and read and read and read, but they never actually practice it at home by themselves to... to You know that's what I say. You always got to respect the respect the presentation
0: space. Because it's almost like you 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 know the information, but you have to be able to communicate that to a wider audience. Now you've presented. There are those that may do like one off presentations here and there, but some of the presentations you have done have been like repeated ones. Like so, the same topic, same information. So let's say you know freshman and transfer orientation. Did you ever get to a point where you got burnt out by it or tired of it, or do you have to figure out new ways to be get reengaged in it
4: oh yeah absolutely I, absolutely it was it was I, i'll say it's, an, it's a natural thing but then I, I can only speak for myself i don't know maybe it's not natural for other people mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah yeah there was there was many times especially when you're doing the same presentation like you know like you said you know freshman or transfer orientation but then also when you're and you know this when you're doing recruiting you may be doing the same presentation three four times in a day Back to back period space and then another, you know, back session of back to back periods. And so trying to keep yourself stimulated because the truth of it is, is that the people hearing it have never heard it before. The, right. the sad part about it is that you've heard it and you said it. So you've got to deal with that struggle that you have of how do I keep this motivated? Because you can get on autopilot. Autopilot's good because it means, you know, your stuff and you can just kind of clock mm-hmm. it, not clock out. But you can't kind of clock out in a sense because it automatically just comes out. You know, the sentences fall where they fall, start a sentence, end of the sentence you said the same sentence a million times. But then how do I, how do I find ways to invest in it myself from an energy standpoint? Because once again, people are hearing it for the first time and, you know, they need to feel like you're presenting it for the first time ever.
0: No, absolutely. And great tips. And I know we can shout out a few people that you know, listeners can look up and maybe you know get some tips from them, and that would be like Darren Lacroix or Craig Valentine or Stephen Gaffney, Ed Tate, Patricia Fripp. Um, I know we've watched a lot of their videos, read a lot of their content, and you know we've had you know, hours of discussion on 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 what they what they've brought to kind of the the speaking world in a sense for presentations.
4: Sure, sure, yeah. They
0: they they like up to that point,
4: I hadn't really heard people talk about presentation structure and that Mm -hmm. everything you do is for a reason now from studying photography and and cinematography you understand that everything you see on the screen is happening for a reason Mm -hmm. every single frame is for a reason the colors that people wear are for a reason you think oh they're just making things happen and so then from it was there that i realized that people actually structure presentations for a reason and then you watch presentation like oh Oh my goodness! Like there is a there's structure to this. Like there's points, there's places to stand, there's ways to bring up topics. I need to, I need to invest in this. Yep. I invest in educate public speaking education, not from a sense of going to school or because I don't I don't even think you you, you or I with like were part of Toastmasters, no. but just in our own independent education, um, thinking about it, just just taking a second to think about. The presentation and what you're doing, not the information, but the presentation. Mm-hmm. Like, like, and so if I could give this example, it's when when uh, every you know how everything i uh, my uh on my interview related back to foot action. Like everything's right. gonna relate to like art. Part of if they're all art references, but when you're drawing, there's people think of color as being you start with color. No, no, you start with drawing with lines. That's it. Mm-hmm. Just the line placement and then values light and dark and that's black gray all the way to white you have to learn values and lines before color Mm -hmm. so because dark and light highlight shadow are way more important than color color is just like the thing that you sprinkle on top of everything else but you have to have an understanding of it and so i think of like the information that you're actually presenting as being like color Mm -hmm. but i think you've got to you 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 don't have to. There's people that have no, have never practiced public speaking, never invest, never, you know, structured it and just go up and talk and do phenomenal. I'm not saying that you have to. But I think sometimes what had happened was in the past, I looked at the information, just know the information. But the structure part of it, which is the structure, doesn't matter what information you're presenting. The structure remains the same. If you can understand and build structure, then that can help with the information you're just putting on top of it. Movement on on a stage, you know, a lot of us move have nervous energy when we move. And I still do, but my nervous energy is different than it was before. Now, I have a sense of control over what I'm doing with my hands, with my feet, with my head, everything because it's just like I'm just aware of it now. Yeah. So, that's that's I think those all those people that you named really was just like, wow, people are thinking about this because they they had to. They were trying to win championships. They're trying to be the best public speakers in the world. These are the best public speakers in the world. And they were, that was their, that was their craft is public speaking. So to learn from them, even just watching the videos that we did, it's just like, oh, people take this, people take this seriously.
0: Yeah. And I guess I can relate it back to art as well. So actually this morning I was watching a video of an artist who was basically takes, goes into Google maps and does a street view and finds random places around the world And then we'll paint that. And I think this kind of goes into presentations where a lot of times we try to overstuff the presentation with information when it's like, you know, we need to take stuff out because we need the audience to be able to digest this information. So like what he would do was he was, instead of being so detailed in the artwork, he was trying to do the minimal amount of strokes for the painting and still make a detailed painting. So what it made him do was he had to focus so much on what stroke he was doing, what color it was. Um, and that way he would be able to still have this painting that looked very much, and it did, looked exactly like the Google Maps uh, street view. Yeah.
4: Yeah. That's, 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 that's wow. Yeah. Because a lot of the, the lava, yes, that's it. That's it. That's the, that's the principle of painting. That's it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, moving along, like, so you left admissions and yeah. then became an academic advisor and so, aside from like the a lot of the presentations that you did as being an academic advisor, what were some of the other roles that that you that you had to do? Well,
4: so yeah, most of the job was I think in even in the job description, say so it's, it's I think it's what seventy percent at the at the position that I was at seventy percent, but it was probably more than that. Is meeting with students on a day to day basis, so um, from morning till. End of the day, you're having one on one appointments with students, uh, students that may be on majority of students were students that were on academic probation. And then also at certain points in the year, students that were undecided or undeclared. You're doing one on one sessions with them, discussing with them the terms of academic probation, um, suggestions and conversations about how the academic process works, how to improve time management, study skills, uh resources on campus listening to student situations all those conversations happening so that's a majority of the job uh, that 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 an academic advisor would,
0: would do Yeah. And then you went on to ultimately start teaching uh, one of the classes that our office offered within Advising Academic Services. And that was for uh, students that were on academic probation. That was the USTD, when we were on the quarter system, USTD 200, the sophomore success course. So it's called sophomore success, but we had you know freshmen, sophomores, maybe even juniors in that class. Based off um, that class, how did you kind of go about that class being an academic advisor you know, meeting with students pretty much one on one, but then now having a class where maybe you had, you know, anywhere between 10 to 20 students.
4: Yeah. On on paper, it, it it's two things. Right. It feels like it should be really similar in that your philosophy is that you're doing like an advising session, but you're just stretching it out over an entire term. It's not as cut and dry as that. But then also on paper, it feels like it should be completely different because you're teaching a class versus sitting in an advising appointment. And it's not as different as that. So it's kind of a mix of the two, uh, more similar than you think and more different than you think. Uh, But it was it was really it was really cool. I I like the uh, seeing students again and again and again. You know, you're going to see them every Monday and Wednesday, every Tuesday and Thursday. And you can kind of keep up with them with how their life's going, but then also kind of build this this long process of getting to a certain point with the, the material, whether it's campus resources, whether you, you, you build something in the beginning to talk about success and motivation, kind of like how, how you do when you were teaching. But then by the end, you kind of tie all that back around. And loop everything. to Everything you can reference back to what you said before, and keep this kind of train moving. Time management extends itself in three or four lectures uh, ahead. So it, th- th- that, that was a that was a cool process of figuring out how to how to weave things together, how to be engaged, and then how to have a develop a connection with each and every student that came in, in the class. It was it was it was really fun. It was really fun. I really enjoyed. It.
0: Yeah. And then there's, then there's, of course, this constant follow-up that you have with that class because right. you see them all throughout that term. And so you have the time to kind of have these like different activities, assignments, have these discussions. What about like, you know, because most of the students that we met with would be students on academic probation and we might only see them that one time. How do you, because I guess one of the questions advisors have is how do I package all this all these different things in an appointment, or, you know, I might be trying to make sure they're in the right classes, but I'm also trying to address why they're on academic probation, trying to see if, if we need to recommend any resources, but you only have 30 minutes to do that. And then also try to figure out, like, how are things going in their life right now? What successes or challenges do they have? How did you go about trying to do, like, a, a, a one, one-time one appointment, in a sense?
4: I just the appointment started. <laughs> what brings you in today? All right. We, I know we're here for this reason. And then the appointment is over. And I hope that I did everything <laughs> I needed to do. And uh, it was, you know, sometimes I was able to get everything in. Sometimes I was able to get maybe a few of the things in. I know that there were certain points that we had to cover as far as the art specific mm-hmm. kind of advising appointments. Uh, so we want to make sure those were in, but everything else you just, because I think you, everything that you said is it's, it, it doesn't often feel like that there's enough time. And that may actually be because there isn't enough, that 30 minute isn't enough time. And uh, I think you had said it earlier, the more, the the more you try to pack into to anything, if you try to pack in more than something will fit, then it's just, it's, it's going to, you know be an issue so if you try to pack so much into an appointment session they may leave with very little and right. so you you kind of gauge in the conversation hey what what's most important here I know that these things have to get done but outside of that what's most important to this situation is it important to them talk about their life situation is it important to yeah. to, to what the what the class is but you're There's a good chance you're going to leave the appointment feeling like you didn't cover what you wanted to cover. How do you? I think more so than that, because you will probably maybe never cover everything you want to cover. But how do you deal with that? um, Whether it's grief, I don't know, guilt. I don't know what it what it is. How do you deal with that feeling of not being able to to go through enough? So it'd be interesting to see how people how
0: people deal with that. Very true. Now, as an academic advisor, you know, you had different roles and different types of students you had to meet with, you were teaching a class, you're doing presentations, you know, and then we've also talked about art and photography. So, I mean, those were things that like outside of work that, you know, you, you love to do. Were you able to incorporate that into the work as an advisor?
4: Yes. Now, before I was, before I got into photography as a, as my own personal craft, um, I mean, you and I were always doing videos and things like that, so that was fun to participate in and be a part of. Uh, we, you know, always able to do advising videos that were uh, informative but fun at the same time, and uh, and being in front of the camera. So that was really cool. And then when I actually got into photography itself, it it kind of found its way into the job situation. So there, maybe there was small little things that we were doing in the office that. You know, I brought the camera in to um, to take pictures for, or it was um, we would have an event, uh, a big advising event, like a big college academic fair kind of event, and so the, the need for photography arose. I just happened to be, you know, getting into photography at the same time, and so I grew as the event was growing Um, and um, it, it, you know, if there was local conferences or anything like that, the people I knew were putting them on and they say, Hey, we need a photographer. They would, Hey, look the direction. Hey, you, are you able to, to, to photograph? Are you able to photograph this graduation, this small graduation, the veterans students had small graduation ceremonies, you know, can you photograph this? Can you bring it for a a sale event, students assistance and learning event? Can you bring your camera and take some photos? That So by working on campus and people knowing that you do the things, then naturally a, photography is something that there's usually always a need for. And so if people know that you do photography, right. they're more likely to ask you uh, to do it. And if we, you do it and it's good, then they're more likely to ask you a second time.
0: Yeah. And even like your, your artwork. So, I mean, you you designed the Lachey Dorsey pin uh, that, that we gave out during finals week that said eat, sleep, study, repeat. Um, and yeah. that was just something where Lachey had it on her, kind of on her wall of the drawing he did. And it was like, that would be an awesome pin to give out. And then, you know, and then two months later, here we, here we have this pin that we can give out to students. But then he also came up with the hashtag up, uh, which ultimately ended up becoming a, a YouTube channel that, that, that we did. We posted a few videos. I was looking at it this morning and I was like, man, I forgot we had all these different videos on here. I forgot we did this YouTube channel. <laughs>
4: yeah. Was- yeah, yeah
0: the thought do you remember uh coming up with advise up and why how that came about i don't i'm, I'm as you, when you said advise
4: up i started immediately going through my brain trying to remember what was the reference that i had for that i don't know if you remember what what i said i don't remember at all now i'm trying to think of it. I'm like it may come to me i'm like i don't even
0: <laughs> it was a essentially that I we have do. to Advise in an upward trajectory, in a sense. So we want to advise up and give the best to to, to our students, in a sense. And basically, is what it came down to. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> well, you came up with it, so I don't know where it came from, <laughs> but it sounds cool. It sounds good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. was really cool. Now, of course, all th- good things have to come to an end, in a sense. And for you, like I would have imagined, you were going to be in higher ed until you retired. But you made the decision this year to to leave. Well, actually, we'll probably come to that because you know you made the decision to leave this year. But it, it's not necessarily that you made that decision this year. It had been something that you had been thinking about, right?
4: Yeah, I've been I've been on and off about it in the later parts of two thousand and. What year is this? 2020. So 2020. Yeah. 2019.
0: This is the year that keeps on going. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. And and but I had, I had said from the time that I started this position, I wasn't going to leave this position in academic advising to go do another position in higher ed. Like mm-hmm. if, I, if I left this position, I was going to do something, see the world outside of higher education. Just because higher education had been my my like from 17 to 34 or 33, that was that was my life, higher mm-hmm. education. It was my job from student assistant all the way yeah. to this point. And so um, I think I, I had been flirting with kind of the idea at around that time, around the end of 2019. But then 2020, I had kind of gone back and forth with it. And then uh, we had our final like summer orientation session. At that point it was it was we finished up that, that, that season of orientation and I, I made the decision the the decision firmly to, to do it at that point.
0: Was there like a deciding factor this year that was like this is the this is the year that, that, that I'm leaving? Probably
4: so. I I don't know if I can say what it is. Not not because I, I have it and I want to keep it secret, um but, yeah. but because I actually don't know what, what it what it yeah. exactly was. I think it was just at a certain point at the decision, it's like it's almost like the decision presents itself and you either go with it or you do, do the other. And neither one is wrong. Whichever choice you make, you know, some because yeah. many people, the decision comes to them to make a change, and um, the decision comes to them to make a change, and they choose to stick with it. And that's not a wrong, that's not a wrong choice, not a right or wrong. Way of going about it but the, i think in, in this time the decision came to presented itself was like hey this is the time you just you you gotta you gotta move and um i said all right but well, this is this is um, what it is and uh once you once you make the call you if you made you made the decision and you gotta you gotta go with that so
0: yeah no because i can imagine a lot of folks that might be wanting to either leave and want to pursue something else, whether that's still within higher ed or to leave higher ed completely and jump to something else that they might want to do and being nervous and really scared to do it because you have something that's kind of secure, something that you've been doing for so long, you know, and then to kind of essentially cut ties with it to go kind of take a chance and do something else. How nervous were you with finally doing that?
4: Oh, yeah, I I was very nervous, you know, still like it, it's not something that, that, that leaves or goes away because you never know what would have happened if you would have made the other choice. You just never know. Like you never know things that, you just never know what happens beyond now. Right. Uh, so there's that. And, and when people say that they're nervous, um, I think terror, <laughs> terrifying, <laughs> is probably right. more in, in line of it because, you know, and that makes perfect sense. And I I don't think that that's a fear, that you like I wouldn't I wouldn't say that if you're terrified to leave and go do something else. That's one of those fears mm-hmm. that you have to be like, I'm going to fight this fear and I'm going to overcome it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's reasons why people feel the way that they do and and have the this secu- and and uh, um, are nervous about the security that they have. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not a fear that makes you weak or not strong, I think, to right. continue in, in the work that you're doing with the security that you have, that's strong. That's just as strong as doing that. But sometimes people think the people that leave are like the strong people or the brave. No, everybody's brave. Right. <laughs> Everybody. Both things are, are equally brave. And so that was uh, ultimately when I was making the decision, I just, I was hoping that people wouldn't, you know, wouldn't say, Oh man, you're being brave. I wish I could like, no, it, it's whatever you're doing is the right, the thing to do. It, it, the, when it's time for you to make a change, if there ever comes a time, then it'll become clear to you specifically. And then you make that choice or you don't make it. Like I, I don't, I, I think it's just, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't feel like I'm any more brave than anybody else. I just made a, I just made a choice to wear a blue shirt and somebody else made a choice to wear a gray shirt today. And that was, <laughs> that was what it, what it, what it meant or what, it, what it was for me. Yeah.
0: I mean, yeah. What it all comes down to is all about choices and committing to it. And then whether it's to stay, go do something else, or like you said, wear this color shirt, wear this color shirt, eat this for breakfast or not eat breakfast. You know, it's all choices. That's
4: right. Yeah. It's, it's the, the person who, who's, who is in a position and they're maybe weighing out the possibilities of making a transition and sticks in that position is making the exact same choice that a person who makes the transition is. It's like, what am I going to do today? Today, going to work, I'm going to do my best today in that position. But I guess maybe sometimes we look at it as the, the right way is only the, is the one that I'm not doing. I'm not making the right choice. I'm missing out on X, Y, and Z. And right. you know, how people deal with that feeling I'm missing out part is is going to be unique and different to everyone else. But ultimately, really, at the end of the day, you're, you're you're not you're you're not missing. You you are doing the thing. You are doing something, and something very important wherever you're at. And so,
0: yeah. Now, I think through the interview, people can assume what your your new career is. But can you talk about what what you're doing now? Well, yes. Yeah,
4: so my my days have been in in. As a as a creative, as an, a visually create a visual, visually artistic person, I've been drawing since I was a kid. I I can't help myself with those things. So those weren't things I had to decide to do. I've been drawing since I can remember, I was since I was two, or three years old. I've been drawing obsessively. So it's like it 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 just I, I end up in front of the computer, whether it's photography or drawing. And I've recently been drawing and painting digitally, drawing and painting. A lot, and, and I think over the last couple of weeks, I've been doing nothing but sitting at the computer, drawing. Um, I've had some work, uh, photog- from from a photography standpoint, so doing photo shoots with with folks and trying to build that um, that not skill set, but that 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 area of economic pursuit, uh, doing photography. I had a chance to go to a photography workshop in Miami two weeks ago. Uh, which was pretty cool four day workshop and learned a lot from that. So yeah, it's just in- investing myself in the creative arts in visual visual creative arts uh, pretty pretty wholeheartedly. So
0: it's been fun. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things I appreciate about you is you're always always wanting to develop yourself, always wanting to make yourself better. You know, because we can never plateau. We we always have somewhere to improve and always something new to do. In a sense. And especially like with photography, where it's almost like there's always some new device or camera or lens or way of shooting, and you know it's something that you're you're always staying on top of. And I always enjoy watching your Instagram and seeing your stories and seeing the photo shoots that you've been doing. So really keep keep that up.
4: Thank you. And and if so, just want to say that that what happened for me was this was before I started photography. We. Uh, by working at a university, there's a lot of benefits and perks that we have, right? Uh, a lot of learning resources, you know, it, it, a lot of lot of benefits to working on campus. And one of them is that there is a library smack dab in the middle of campus. 750,000, probably more reading materials from the tour. I used to give tours at, at a point in time as well. And one day I was doing some research on best PowerPoint best practices, and i came across linda.com and linda was a resource for personal professional develop personal and professional development in different areas and i found out that we had connections with linda through the university and so i was sitting there with our our some folks from our human resource, and they were talking about all the staff development that they do the little workshops on campus and things and then at some point in the in that meeting i it dawned on me when i was walk, i was like wait a minute, there's a library on campus. Like I've been looking at some of the online library resources, but I was like, no, there's literally a library on campus, five (laughs) floors or four floors, really, of of materials of every subject I can want to learn. And so it just was like a light bulb moment. I was like, oh my goodness. So I just started going in and I went to the third floor, which is where the business books were. And I started reading about accounting because I I was like, there's all these books on accounting. Like, let me learn accounting. And so the same thing with, like you're talking about with, with art and, and visual arts, like, like you said, there's no way to plateau. If you can just think to yourself that there is a library of information or like there's one library and then there's multiple libraries around the world. You, there's no way that you can ever read every book in a library. By the time that you get to a certain point, they'll replace them with new. Mm-hmm. There's so much to always be learning about, whatever subject it is that you want to learn. And so I just said, let me just take the initiative and learn and be curious about everything. If I can be curious about everything, the things that are interesting to me, right. then I think life will be good. I'll, 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 never, I'll never plateau. I'll never, I can't fail if I'm always curious about life at, at, around
0: me. Such a perfect way to, to end that interview. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. And you know, I know we're going to be chatting here and there um, throughout the next you know 20 25 years you know cuz i've known you since 2004 and it's it's definitely been a great friendship so i appreciate you being on again for the podcast
4: same it is my pleasure thank you for uh, having me on
0: thank you michael i really do appreciate you and your friendship through these years i look forward to seeing everything that you continue to accomplish if you want to get in touch with michael you can reach him on Instagram. And so his IG is Mike Scan Harrison. That's M I K E S C A N H A R R I S O N. Or you can reach him through email at M, the number two, H B O M B, the number three, at yahoo.com. Uh, Michael wanted to also share a comment about Ray Navarro. And Michael said Ray Navarro was my first supervisor in advising and academic services. I only worked under him a month directly, but I was familiar with his legacy and impact on the advising community at Cal State San Bernardino. He fought for students and was passionate about students having the opportunity to succeed. This was felt through the scholarship initiatives left behind under his guidance. He will be missed. Thank you, Michael, for that. And before we get to our last interview, it might be nice to hear from probably our biggest supporter of the podcast, and that is none other than Nakata Executive Director Charlie Nutt. And the organization that has contributed a lot to our podcast has also been Nakata. In this very brief conversation, Charlie talks about what he has seen Nakata accomplish in 2020 and also what 2021 brings. Hey, what's up? Matt Markin here, and I am with the executive director of Nakata, Charlie Nutt. So 2020, it's been a crazy year, ups and downs. We're a couple months away from being able to say goodbye to 2020. As you look back on this year, what accomplishments have you seen Nakata make?
3: Oh, Lord. Um, You know, man, it's hard to believe we're almost at the end of this year. I don't know about the rest of y'all. It's kind of like in March, it was we just kind of went on hold and now mm-hmm. we're at the end of it. And it's like, you know, um, uh, you know, there's so many things I think we've accomplished. Um, you know, I think we've accomplished how do we pull together as a community and work toward the future of students? Cause that's what we're all about. And to see what everybody's doing and to, to, to watch what everybody's working on is so exciting across the board. So I think that's the first thing I think that, as a sense of community, we really have come together to look at those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as an association, you know, we, we went into the um, spring with canceling everything, but then still looking at how do we get things out to members. So through our webcasts, through our webinars, through panels, through um, all, all the different things that the ACDs did and the regions did, we were really still able to get information out to staff or to advisors, out to faculty, whoever it may be um, in ways that really was valuable and to be able to do that. They may not have been able to come to a region conference, but they were able to get really valuable information. They needed, quite frankly, at the time they needed it right there mm-hmm. um, within that. Um, and, and then I think, I, I think we just did a really good job with the region conference, um, the annual conference. I just think that what we did was superb. I think what we got accomplished was, was phenomenal. Um you know, I never would have thought we'd have 2,400 people there. Um, you know, I was hoping maybe 1,000, maybe 1,500. And as those numbers kept going up and up in the executive office, I kept going. I knew people would do it, but they really did it. And that was so important. And I think the whole, just from beginning of the region conference, of the, of the um, annual awards ceremony that you were part of, at the very end of the annual conference, the, the, the keynote, where there were 1,800 people still in that room, just really says, Our members is about how do we improve student success. And so, you know, we had a lot of things go on, we had a lot, of things happen, but I just think it really went very well. You know, I, I, looking back, you know, I wish that we had done things differently at the time, but we were where we were at the time. And I think we really have made a lot of progress. You will understand this because of who you are, but I have a cat who's outside who is 41 degrees and walks in. I mean like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot he was outside. I looked over the oh Lord, he wants to come in. Oh no. Is it-
0: Client at at
3: the door. He was just looking at me like, oh, <laughs> "Let me in." <laughs>
0: Human, what are you doing?
3: <laughs> he was, yeah, he was looking at me like, "Uh oh, this is not good." <laughs> so anyway, I'm sorry. No um, worries.
0: And as we look towards 2021, where do you see Nakata going?
3: You know, there's so many places we could go. You know, I think the very first thing we have to recognize is that virtual is what we have to experience as we move forward. And so as we really look at the spring, you know, we're looking at at, at 10 region conferences going to be virtual, our, our winter events, our assessment institutes that will be virtual, and they're going to be outstanding. They're going to be phenomenal. Um, working with the region conference chairs, working with the region chairs, working with all the people who work, you know, it's a little bit like the annual conference. Those people were very used to, I'm going to do evaluations, I'm going to do Uh, I'm going to do, this is where people come to get information. They're going to, they had to totally change and think about what my jobs are differently. We'll do the same thing with the region conferences. But what I know about our members is they're going to do whatever needs to be done because they want this to be done well. and They want this to be done in a good way. Uh, And so I know they're going to be fantastic conferences within that. Um, I'm really excited. Our board of directors is working really so very hard on really looking at our vision and mission statement. You know, it's over 10 years old. It really needs to be looked at. Where are we going for the future? You know, where where does the association want to be in 10 years? How does the board and and board of directors really work on a vision and mission statement that's going to get us there? And I think that's what's so exciting about our structure the way we have it is that we have this, you know, nine-member board that's 30, you know, they're they're looking 35,000 feet above the association and saying, where do we want to go from here? And I think that's going to be so very exciting as we as we roll that out to members and get members input, because as we think about the future, you know, those of you who are your age, you're going to be here 10 more years. We want to know what it's going to look like in 10 years. And so it's just so exciting to see that conversation beginning to happen. Um, And then I just think we're going to see so much more exciting things happening on campuses, working with students for them to be successful than we ever could have imagined last March. All of us got sent home at the last minute. We all were out working our little butts off on our campuses and we were told to go home and work from home, which was a totally different world. A lot of our faculty colleagues who I love dearly had lots of problems with that change advisors didn't have that problem. They were ready to move forward. And I'm going to be so excited to start seeing presentations about that and research about that because sooner or later, we're all going to come back to campus as to what that looks like. We don't know. I mean, you already know in your campus, Matt, y'all going to at least through spring going to be totally online. Now, what's it look like spring? Who knows? But right now, you know, fall and winter are going to be online. Um, all of us are going to come back to some normal, but even with normal, it's going to have to be virtual. Mm-hmm. And how do we make that happen? And so I'm going to be really excited to see what we see from our members in the next year, because I think there's going to be just exciting work. Um, and this just generally, I just am so excited to see where the association is going to go because it never seems to fail me. It never lets me down. It never did. We, did we envision this a year ago, Matt? No, nope. <laughs> we were talking about this a year ago. Look at where we've gone now. So it's just like there's always something that's going to be moving forward. And that's why I love the association. I love what I do. It's because of this new adventure that we're going to be moving on. And it's always going to be a new adventure, but advisors are always right there at the table.
0: Absolutely. And if there's anything about NACADA members, uh, we can be very creative. We can adapt and we will make things happen. So I look there's forward a, to seeing see
3: you. Emphasis, we're going to do it our association.
0: Absolutely. So I look forward to see what happens in 2021. And Charlie, as always, thanks for joining us.
3: Always. Thanks, Matt. Up next
1: is an interview with Vivian Rath from Trinity College, Dublin. Alongside his work in higher ed, Vivian is also a disability rights campaigner. And you'll hear about that in this interview. I am absolutely delighted that we have the opportunity to chat to our next guest, Vivian Rath. Vivian is an Adjunct Teaching Fellow in Trinity College Dublin and has just completed his PhD on the social engagement experiences of disabled students in higher education in Ireland he completed an msc in business management where he researched the employment of graduates with disabilities he worked in university college dublin in the office of the vice president for students for five years in the area of student transitions and the student experience he is a member of the irish human rights and equality commission disability advisory committee this committee has a role in the monitoring of the implementation of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. He has extensive experience providing support to people with disabilities, accessing education and employment opportunities. Vivian, welcome to Adventures in Advising.
5: Conor Han, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I've been really looking forward to this opportunity to come and chat to you. Uh, I've listened to uh, many uh, of your podcasts so far, uh, there were some very interesting ones there in the uh, back halfway through the semester on leadership and uh, student leadership, but also uh, management uh, leadership, and I, I thought they were really great. Uh, that uh, so I've learned, I've been learning from this podcast as I went along. I've also learned a little bit about American football. Uh, <laughs> not, not I know very much. I know I attended two games. Uh, one here about two years ago, uh, I think it was in the Aviva. And uh, then there was one previous to that, and the, the footballers stayed in UCD, University College, Dublin. And it was great excitement, a great fun uh, that uh, but I still have to say I have a lot to learn on American football.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're enjoying the the podcast, and thanks for for listening. And uh, yeah, I mean, the the American football is definitely a, a passion of mine. So uh, happy to to offer any uh, lessons on on that 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 you might need. But I think uh what I would like to, to say to you firstly um is uh, congratulations on completing your your PhD studies you you passed your viva with no corrections uh, just uh was that was that la- last week uh,
5: at this point or 2 weeks ago the weeks blend into one another I'm still celebrating uh, uh that it has taken a full week to for the for for it to sink in to be honest with you it's Uh, The last couple of months have been so uh, challenging with COVID, of course, uh, and also uh, that with the amount of work that has to be done to bring a PhD to completion. uh, That uh, I suppose a little bit of background on myself uh, to explain uh, that I'm a person with a disability or a disabled person. And so I have actually been been cocooning in my house uh, since uh, March when Ireland went into lockdown. And uh, that, so I don't get out very often now. I'm also very, very lucky, Colin. I live in a place called Wexford, uh, in the southeast of Ireland, and so I live in the countryside. And so I have the opportunity to visit the beach uh, and the seaside on a daily basis. So th- that has been one lucky thing, but it is very challenging uh, having to cocoon and that uh, not having the opportunity to meet uh, people or to socialize with them uh, and really uh, that my resiliency skills really kicked in over the last while uh, that uh, I, as I mentioned, I have a disability uh, and that uh, I suffer from chronic asthma. So I suffer from chest infections and as a result i I actually often spend time uh, isolated uh, so but this is the the greatest period of isolation I've ever had. However, the one advantage was it meant I had no distractions when completing my phd on the social engagement experiences of disabled students in higher education
1: well i mean 2020 year is a year that people will remember for a long time but i i'm delighted that you will be remembering it as the the year in which you you uh, achieved the, your phd and I think it was really interesting that you, you know, talked a little bit about about where you're you're living and put into context. I think for our listeners that'll be useful. One of the things that we often like to ask our guests to begin with, I suppose, is how is their route into higher education and and how they came to work in the sector. So, can you talk to me a little bit about that?
5: Well, the, I'm just laughing here actually because. During the week, while I was taking some time, I, I watched Van Wilder and you know, I, took, I I made some comparisons between myself and Van in terms of that. I still, in effect, haven't left college, uh, that uh, I, I uh, attended my vocational school here in Kilmockridge, where I'm, where I'm from, and uh, that uh, I undertook a degree in pharmacology in University College Dublin. And at that time, and I, I didn't know it at the time. But actually, uh, there was only 1% of the student population in Ireland had a disability. So I was re- very much in the minority at that time. And it was certainly a very challenging time, column, uh, that, uh with many barriers and, and ver- very much a lack of awareness. Um, but, I, you know, I developed connections. I made friends. Uh, in my second year, my brother joined me in college and uh, we lived together with a... Uh, um, a man, a blind man from Mayo, uh, in, uh, Ireland, and, uh, that he, he, we, we built a connection, uh, we made friends, we had a community, we lived on the residence, and do you know what, uh, the barriers seemed to matter less, uh, when I had a group of friends, and that, uh, uh, that I enjoyed myself, and eventually, I was actually elected to, uh, Students Union Vice President, uh, in UCD, and, uh, that I worked with other disabled students and other students in the college to bring about changes in the college. And that that really, I mean, that stayed with me forever then I think, uh, that experience. But uh, from that I went on and did a a master's in Smurfit Business School, as you mentioned in management. And I focused uh, my research on the employment of graduates with disabilities. And I learned that the skills and the experiences that they had in college affected their employment uh, opportunities and I rea- I became to realize that some disabled students hadn't got that wealth of experience they didn't have that engagement with clubs and societies uh, and uh, that uh, I, I started to, to wonder about that but I, I then actually I was I started working uh, on an internship basis in University College Dublin in uh, the area of orientation. Uh, that uh, and I went on then to start working full time in the college in the office of the vice president for students. And I had great fun uh, working on the orientation program there, the transitions, the area of student experience and health and welfare and uh, and, and that. And that, that's that was the beginning of it. I think uh, that internship on orientation. And that uh, I learned so much during that time. and it was it was a great environment and great fun. Uh, that, uh, so that that just gives you some insight into to my my background and how I uh, managed to get into working in the area.
1: Yeah, really interesting. And the fact that you, I suppose, worked, um, your, your way through the, the institution and ended up with the, the 360 view of it. Um, but you, um, I suppose, uh, I, I, and I, I, certainly something I can empathize with, um, you, you have, uh, a view of a number of the institutions in Ireland and, and in Dublin because, you moved across to uh, Trinity then to um, to begin your your PhD um, work. So can you talk to me a little bit? Um, I know, I know we, we said that the title it was that the social engagement experiences of disabled students in higher education in Ireland. Can you talk to me a little bit about the the PhD and um, maybe a, a, a little bit about what you uncovered
5: um, during your research? Absolutely, uh, Conor. I'd be only too delighted to. Uh, that so, I undertook uh, my PhD, as you mentioned, uh, in Trinity College Dublin in the School of Education, and uh, that uh, what probably is worth noting uh, is that there are not very many disabled people uh, go on to do PhDs uh, in Ireland, and in actual fact, that that's quite very much the case across academia, and we might discuss that uh, later on. Uh, mm-hmm. Podcast. Um, But so I I very much again was in the minority, and it kind of nearly seemed like when I began college in the first place. And so I I decided, uh, following an extensive review of the literature, to uh, undertake this PhD on the social engagement experiences. And one of the things to note, of course, is that um, there was no published research, and there's still only up to my PhD, there has been no published research. On the social engagement experiences of disabled students in college. Um, primarily because um, the idea of disabled students attending college in Ireland is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, and the policy has been basically focused around let's get students into college, uh, let's get them progressing from their uh, secondary school uh, in, into higher education. And so, that 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 policy has worked over the last 15 years and there has been funding and supports within the colleges and for the students uh, through different schemes, uh, but also through the establishment of disability support services within college. And so um, the numbers of disabled students have increased quite significantly. uh, And so I'll give you an example, as I mentioned, when I began uh, in about 2002, uh, it was a approximately one percent, or maybe a little less, uh, of the student population. Uh, but now um, it's seven point one percent of the student population. So there's been a huge growth uh, in the numbers of disabled students attending higher education. Um, so uh, the focus has been on student getting students in and under academic and uh, demands and requirements, and providing those supports. But there in terms of research there has been uh, a lesser focus perhaps on their social engagement uh, and that uh, so i identified a, a number of areas that i wanted to, to look at and that's that that were what are the barriers and enablers to students social engagement what what are students sense of belonging these disabled students what was their sense of belonging in the college and um, and then I, there, I wanted to look at the practice element and uh, what are the practices in college and then look at the, the, the effect of the national policies uh, uh, within the colleges. So those were kind of the four areas that I took to look at. Um, so as part of that, uh, I, there, were, there were 65 participants uh, took part in qualitative research. So uh, we're talking about interviews and focus groups. And uh, that, uh, that was spread over nineteen uh, colleges in Ireland. Now I'm using the words. I just realised I'm using the words colleges and higher education institutes uh, interchangeably. Uh, it more or less means the same thing. I just but for the purposes of a wider audience, uh, I thought perhaps that the use of college might be uh, more accessible to people. But and uh, uh, um, for the, for our show today, and um, so as I said, there was nineteen colleges so that's a very high number of colleges uh, across Ireland because Ireland obviously is a smaller country Um, those uh, 65 participants the majority were students uh, and those were made of disabled students uh, disabled uh, students who had just graduated um, and then uh, what are called students union officers uh, who uh, are are, uh, also I suppose you could think of that as student government Um, And so they made up the largest proportion of it. And then, of course, I included uh, senior managers. And senior managers would be, uh, say, for instance, vice presidents, uh, registrars, uh, or people who perhaps uh, had a very specific focus at senior management level on that area. Um, And then the last group that were included were disability support personnel. And those are the people that would, uh, meet the student I suppose maybe on a face-to-face basis and um, so but the key element of the research and the key focus of the research was placing the student at the center and that was a critical element for me um, and also as a disabled person um which you know I recognized throughout the research was in to ensure that I was working together with the participants uh, for transformational change I think so so those are some of the key elements um, so, at this point, I, I you know, as opposed to going maybe through the the whole methodology, I think perhaps if I give you some of the key findings, Colin, would that be? Would that yeah, be? That'd yeah, that'd
1: be that'd be great.
5: Yeah, look, if you could, you can certainly stop me if you feel the need. The key here uh, around this, the whole premise around it is uh, our idea around it, of course, is before I give you the findings, is that social engagement, as you will know, Colin, has been linked to Belonging and thus greater student retention and student success, and I'm sure you've found that uh, through your through, through your work uh, with international students, especially.
1: Um, absolutely so we we know that students who feel a connection um to the com- to their community to their college community um do do better academically and that those students are much more likely to remain with the the institution so that community that sense of belonging is absolutely key to all cohorts of students
5: yeah and and when i did my literature review that was the point that that i, that I uh, had had unearthed and it was it's right across the literature, but so in my the, the, the results from my research, uh, the, some of the key findings would be that the majority of students, uh, disabled students, considered themselves socially engaged. And um, now, what social engagement was, students differed very much on what their social engagement was. And um, but, I think it could be you know for the majority of students, it was actually having someone. To be, to have to be able to go for a cup of coffee with, to have a cup of tea with, a chat to connect um, and to be feel part of. Now, for others, for other students, uh, it it was that at the very minimum. But at the other end of the spectrum, it was about being involved in the students union, uh, involved in uh, as a student ambassador or a peer mentor. Uh, and but at the very basic level, it was about. Having someone to talk about their problems with, to connect with, and to just share a cup of tea, and for me, that from uh, as a researcher, I, I found that very interesting, and I, I that uh, I think it it really just shows how simple it can be uh, for people, and we just I think uh, we we need to be, always bear that in mind uh, that as well. Uh, all, uh, but the, the reality is that all almost all students uh fa- face barriers to their social engagement uh and those barriers uh included uh they included say for instance structural barriers and structural barriers continue to pose uh, a problem in ireland and that is despite the fact that there is legislation uh in ireland that uh, is there to ensure that all services are made fully accessible to disabled people. But despite that, students were facing barriers with lifts and having to access keys in order to use the disabled toilets, um, unable to get a lift. Uh, I mean, there was one particular story that really, uh, I I really found a little challenging because it, it it was very difficult for the student. And that was that the student spoke of how after class uh her and her friends had decided to to go for uh, a coffee and that uh, they all went to their whatever their student center was and they got to the lift and the lift was broken and so the student seemingly on that day at that time there was no other location open in some of the smaller colleges maybe there wouldn't be and it's not unusual nowadays for some of the the bigger colleges to have lectures late in the evening but that the fact was she was left and she had to be she was in that unenviable position that she had to say look I don't want to stop you e going for your coffee you go and get your coffee and I'll go and do my own thing and that was really the student was really found that very hard because um she felt isolated she felt on her own um and she she simply said you know I felt like I didn't belong and, and that was really, really sad. And that, I think, there were many examples of that. um, And many examples. And I, I, there was another student who spoke of, who, who spoke and just said, look, I, I wish, uh, he was uh, wanting to join clubs and societies. And he said that he went into the, I think it was Freshers Week or something like that to to join a club or a society. And he said he just wished uh, somebody from one of the clubs or societies had put their arm around him and said, you know, there is something here for you too. And uh, that, that those, those moments said an awful lot. And, and you have to ask uh, what was happening in those colleges, that that was this reaction of the student. Um, so, but the, as you can imagine, those the research showed that the barriers had a significant impact on students' sense of identity within the college and their ability to form that identity uh, and where, and they questioned their sense of belonging. uh, And it also had a significant impact uh, on on their ability to engage in decision-making and leadership uh, within the college. So those were just some examples of that. But students really did link uh, their social engagement to their sense of belonging uh, as part, during the study. Uh, And what was interesting, column and was that students felt that they, they they belonged in their college but they disabled but they questioned their in-class belonging which which was quite interesting and I'm sure you'd know from your own work the importance of creating a sense of belonging within your class
1: yeah, that's that is really interesting, actually, Vivian, because I know that for certain cohorts of students, um, they they have almost felt more um, sense of belonging in in class um, than with the the university uh, or, or or the, or, or the in- institution. So this is really interesting that for uh, students with disabilities, they, they didn't find that. And did, were you able to to discover why?
5: why that was? Well, now, The the, what I would say is that uh, it's, what I would say is that there is a need for further research on that particular thing. Um, And that, uh, what I would say is also that whether this was linked or whether it wasn't, but but one thing that students noted was that there, um, I think it was, if I can't, I think it's almost just over half, I think it was, felt there was a lack of disability awareness in their college. And they felt that that there was a greater lack of awareness among their peers than perhaps the staff. So that, I think, was very interesting. Now, whether there's a link there, uh, well, you know, they did, students mentioned, gave examples of doing group work, for instance, and that where that lack of awareness... Uh, around say for instance uh, you know you using a different for instance a, a student a, a, it's best to explain with an example uh, that one student who was uh, partially deaf gave the example of uh, go, going to do group work with a particular her class, classmates and explaining to them that she needed a particular type of room in the library that was closed off and make sure to book it and all the rest and then uh, the the student who was part of the group work didn't do that uh, and she couldn't do the group work. So th- those examples of where that lack of awareness then meant that the student was isolated from the rest of the group. So it, it, I think the, the area uh, around the in-class sense of belonging needs to be uh, researched further but there are certainly very interesting findings. Um. So I mean senior management and disability supports of services in the college as personnel, I should say, in the college were very much about, uh, and um, they mentioned lots of different aspects about how to create a sense of belonging. But one dimension was that the the necessity to be able to hear the student voice. And students too, students were very much, disabled students were very much interested in uh, engaging in leadership, decision making, um, how important it was to have they heard, their voice heard. Yet, when I spoke to senior managers, uh, almost all senior managers were unaware of a, of a disabled student in a senior leadership position in the college. And so the, the question there is around, I mean, the widening participation agenda uh, and uh, ensuring that uh, all uh, groups have an opportunity to contribute and to uh, contribute to the development of policy within the institution, uh, well then, does that mean then that disabled students are not having that opportunity at the highest levels? And how does that then impact upon uh, the diversity agenda and the greater inclusion uh, of all voices within the institution? Uh, so there are some wider questions there uh, for the management of the widening participation agenda uh, within uh, HEI, and that wasn't the case, I would imagine, in all of them. But but certainly it was coming across, uh, and and I think uh, in terms of on terms of that uh, steps would need to be taken to uh, be aware that some disabled students face extra barriers. Uh, in taking on those leadership roles or decision-making roles. Uh, Maybe because of the societal barriers they face due to inaccessible lecture theaters, inaccessible room meeting rooms, um, the difficulty getting across inaccessible campuses, or maybe it could be that they have a chronic illness and they need some extra support to attend the meeting. So that that certainly needs to be uh, considered. Um, And again, that kind of comes down to awareness. And also about what kind of a college climate is created within the, within the campus, um, and and I mentioned about the fact that there was um, that lack of disability awareness uh, within within the college. So th- those are just some of the key findings, uh, Column. I mean, there's a there's a whole range of of uh, different aspects, and it's it's broken. It's it's quite a large study, large qualitative study. Uh, so there's there's a lot more for another day.
1: Oh yeah, no. I, I, it's really interesting, as you said, it, it raises a, a huge number of questions, and and it's an understudied area. And it actually parts of what you're saying, particularly that story about the the student, where the the for our North American listeners, for the elevator was, was was out of order, and therefore you know the student couldn't you know have to say the, you know that let everyone else go on, and you know that that they couldn't participate like that's heartbreaking to, to hear that and it, it kind of ties in we we had um leanne mcdonough um who is the um traveler education coordinator in cit and she talked about going into a classroom and she had uh, a student in the classroom in, in second level who said to her like you're a teacher and, and she said yes i am and she said i i didn't know the travelers were allowed to be teachers and we we have to change this situation where um we we people don't don't think that. Or they can't participate fully because that is something that we can change. And I think the the work you're doing and the study is, you know, hopefully there we can build on that and that this is the the beginning. And it does it does raise really interesting questions. As you said and something that you mentioned earlier that uh, maybe we can circle back to a little bit is particularly around the, the the number of students who. It's great to hear about the increasing participation at undergrad level, and, and we've gone from one to just over seven percent but I know it's it's a much smaller um, number of, of students with disabilities go on to postgraduate or to graduate um, uh, courses and, and education. Can you talk to me a little bit about that Vivian?
5: Yeah well that uh, as I mentioned at the beginning that uh, I when I joined the postgraduate PhD in Trinity College Dublin that I did feel a little that uh, I was back at the start again in in terms of being in the minority and that, uh, yes, that currently in a a college in Ireland uh, that it is about uh, 2.4% of the student population has a disability. Uh, uh, That is in comparison to 7.1% have a disability in the undergraduate population. So there's a a significant gap there, and it it leads to the question, well, where have those students gone? Does it mean that they're not progressing to postgraduate level? Or maybe does it mean that they are not disclosing their disability when they reach postgraduate level? And equally, those uh, points are equally serious. And that, and of course, it could be a combination of both, uh, which uh, is number three, but that if we say that they're not progressing, well, we have to start asking the questions, well, why are they not progressing? And I, uh, with one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Patricia McCarthy, and with the help of the uh, Vice Provost uh, uh, for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, and my supervisor, Professor Michael Chevenon, and and the disability support service as well, Declan Trainer, established a forum for staff, uh, post or st- staff and PhD students with disabilities, and that actually uh, has been really great, uh, and it has built a, a small community of people uh, to discuss these issues, but also just on a very simple way to have fun, uh, to share experiences, and. Um, and then, of course, we we also work on some serious matters too, uh, which is try and look at questions like that and see well how can we improve things. And that, uh, what, and I from my own experience as well, of course, uh, that uh, it can be very difficult for a disabled uh, person uh, in academia because there is no culture of disabled people in academia, uh, so there is a very much a lack of awareness. Now, I was very lucky; I had a supervisor who was very aware, and he linked me in with other people with disabilities, which was actually very helpful because we could share ideas. And of course, not all disabled people want to be linked in with disabled people, but it is helpful in terms of understanding the environment, understanding needs and that. I received uh, support from the disability support services. And that's the key here, um, that when you progress from undergraduate to postgraduate in Ireland, you, you can avail of the same supports. And so it's the support is there, but what we found through our forum is that there is a lack of awareness of those supports. Um, but at postgraduate level, it's a very, very different environment to undergraduate. Firstly, it's extremely competitive. And so there, that competitivity uh, means that some disabled people may be afraid to disclose their disability. Uh, it's it, There is also this uh, culture uh, within uh, PhD and research and academia, which is publish or die, uh, which is the phrase, I don't particularly like it, but uh, that, uh, that's the situation. And as such, if you're a PhD student with a disability who has to manage, uh, for instance, in my case, a, a chronic illness, uh, you're challenged maybe by doing your own work uh, and you're also expected maybe for instance to take on some lecturing work and in my case we, you're expected maybe to organize conferences and events all to build up your academic cv and then on top of all of that you're expected to publish so this increased workload um is can be very 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 challenging and it's it's very it's very challenging for all young academics uh, and that so those those then become barriers, Column, to continuing, to entry, to de- developing your CV, and then, of course, to getting a job. Um, and I think uh, another aspect is funding, uh, that uh, funding for research uh, is often dependent on being able to do all of those things on top of your PhD. Uh, and a lot of the funding applications are in a. Uh, Disability proofed. There's not a consideration of that because there's a lack of awareness. And in many respects, that's because there's probably not enough disabled people engaged uh, in the process uh, or at the decision making table. Um, and of course, the independent living movement uh, have a great motto, which is nothing about us without us. And that really needs to start applying. I- in higher education, more in college, more, uh, and not just in a tokenistic way, but actually placing disabled people uh, who make it through the system or who win the, the system to uh, at the most senior positions in decision making. And then what you will see is hopefully changes, um, and uh, it's it's happening in Ireland in other areas. For in for instance, in gender equality, uh, that uh, we have the Athena Swan. Uh, scheme and it, it, there has been there has been huge changes uh, made in the last couple of years um but one, one of the aspects of that was identified in my research which was very clear was that uh, in terms of the equality diversity and inclusion agenda uh, disability was was falling way down the priority list uh, and uh, that uh, it, which uh, which is very worrying because, if you consider it uh, in Ireland, well, actually across the world, uh, that uh, 15% of the world population is identified as having a disability. So um, there there are huge steps to be taken. So in terms of, as I said, in postgraduate level, uh, there is a lot of work to be done. I think it would be helpful if, uh, uh, if steps were now taken to start improving the supports um, especially uh, around uh, providing for the extra costs, the cost of disability when undertaking postgraduate or PhD.
1: Really, really interesting points there and, 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 and questions and potential solutions that, that you've offered. So thanks for that, um, Vivian. Now, maybe as we kind of come to the end of today's uh, interview. Um, I, I mentioned in, in your bio um, about your work with the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Maybe you could tell me a little bit more
5: uh, about that. Oh, yeah, Colin. <clears throat> well, that is, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm uh, a disabled person, but I'm also a disability rights activist. Uh, and for many years, even in, especially in my times in college, Uh, that uh, it's where I began and it's where I've met some of my best friends and I've had many disability rights allies but as part of my PhD I developed obviously a huge knowledge in the area of higher education and disability but also through my experiences uh, of coming through the system I have um, learned much about the area Uh, and so I actually was appointed uh, to the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission Disability Advisory Committee, and so the Disability Advisory Committee is a group of—I uh, uh, I, I, I think it's twelve actually—disabled uh, people uh, who have come together uh, to to discuss and have. We have a specific role in monitoring Ireland's implementation of the United Nations Convention. On the rights of persons with disabilities, and the UNCRPD uh, was ratified in Ireland uh, about two years ago, and that um, it's very significant, Conor. It doesn't give uh, disabled people any new rights; it just reinforces the rights that do it, that do exist. And I suppose, in many ways, it provides uh, countries or states with a framework to ensure that disabled people's rights are. Uh, assured and that they have access to them uh, so it's i'm very privileged to 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 sit on this committee with some of the, the some super disability rights activists from all around ireland and that um, who have such a wealth of experience and i think i've learned more from being on it uh so it, it's been very very valuable uh, and that i take my role very seriously uh and that uh, it it has it's been so important to far disabled people in Ireland to have the UNCRPD behind them to to work on their rights, and I think that that's the key word here: rights, uh, and that disabled people in Ireland want rights, not charity. Uh, and I think what would be very very useful uh, within colleges is to move to a rights-based approach and the uncrpd could offer them that framework to do that uh, and i think it'd be really great to see that
1: thank you for for sharing uh that that it, it, it's interesting um i think for for listeners um to to hear that and um you know about that the work that's that's being undertaken and your involvement in it um now i i, I suppose the listeners should uh no, I uh, Vivian organized an event yesterday called "Building Back Better Towards uh, Disability Inclusive Post COVID Nineteen Higher Ed," which is a great event. I got to join it, um, and it was interesting that um, everyone speaking mentioned about Vivian's uh, eloquence and. I think that has shone through in in this uh, interview. You you are so knowledgeable and and so passionate um, about your your topics, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, we didn't even get to uh, discuss the fact that you won an equality champion award for uh, uh, postgrads at, at Trinity in in the past. There's so much of your work that we have yet to, to delve into. Hopefully, we can have you back again um, on the on Adventures in Advising in the not-too-distant future. But Vivian Rath, it's been an absolute
5: pleasure. Column thank you very much. And maybe you'll come back someday to talk about a bit of hurling. Uh, and we'll share our hurling and football stories together. Thank you very much, Colum.
1: Thanks very much to Vivian for taking the time to chat to us. And if you'd like to contact Vivian, you can do so via email. He's at vrath at tcd.ie. That's v-r-a-t-h at tcd.ie.
0: That is it for the last episode of 2020. and Join us in 2021 with our episode 26 coming out on Monday, January 4th. Enjoy your winter break. Have fun, be safe, and as always, keep advising.
1: Application, application,
5: application, application, application.